clubhouse. But I would never betray you. You already have. Nothing happened. As soon as I knew it wasn't you, I got out of bed. <laughs> Did she? Not immediately, so I ordered her to leave. But you never told me. Because there was nothing to tell. It seems to me there was a great deal to tell. She didn't matter to me in the least. And there was no chance anything was going to happen. But I knew you depended on her. It didn't make sense to blow up the house because of her stupid mistake. So you allowed me to be waited on? To have my hair arranged? My clothes chosen? My bath run by a woman who'd been naked with my husband? It's disgusting! I'm sorry if it was a bad decision. Decision? I call that betrayal! Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode three of season two of the Gilded Age, Head to Head. It was co-written by series creator Lord Julian Fellows and executive producer Sonia Warfield. It was directed by Michael Engler. Michael most recently directed the season two premiere. I was so happy when I saw Lord Fellows and Ms. Warfield working together again. We, we interviewed them last season together. These two have worked well together when telling the story. Not surprising to see her name in the credits given a lot of the Peggy and T. Tom's fortune storyline, which, you know, I, I think requires a delicate and informed hand if you're going to tackle it. Absolutely. If you guys have not listened to any of our season one coverage, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that interview between Lord Fellows and Miss Warfield. Really, really important information about how they work together and about what Sonia herself was bringing to the table because obviously we all know that Lord Fellows wrote things like Downton Abbey and for her to come in she's she's younger she has a different point of view she's a woman of color she's really very much adding like a different authenticity to it that I very much enjoy if you enjoy these sort of background pieces of information come on and join us over on the Facebook group the Gilded Age fan group it's HBO series in parentheses come check it out we give you guys some extra history notes we talk to you guys about some different upcoming theories that might be happening but also so we offer up these interviews that happened last season, and we very much hope we get some interviews this season. I really want the costumer this year, Mike. How about you? Do you have anybody in particular you'd, you'd love to talk to? Uh, I, I, everyone, I, I definitely want the costumer. I feel like either I have grown and am paying attention to the costumes more. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. I'm smelling it. <laughs> because I am more mature. Oh, you're mature, as my mom would say. More mature. I don't know if I'm paying attention to it more or if the costumes themselves are just speaking louder if, if they're or playing maybe no i'm rubbing off on you in this uh massive interest in costuming hair and makeup that i have it's it's more most likely that <laughs> you are also more mature than you were last year so <laughs> i don't know about that i don't that's not even a goal of mine you know that isn't that funny i don't care to be more mature it's but being mature is overrated you guys listen if you have not watched this episode get out of here get out of here, put this on pause and come back and listen to us afterwards. We don't want to spoil you for anything. This is not a step-by-step recap. We're just going to talk about highlights, things that we care about, things that stuck out to us. But please give us some feedback. You can hit us up on Facebook, on X, over on Instagram at Pod Clubhouse. Tell us what you're seeing. What do you want us to be hitting more on? 
We care what you guys want to hear. And also, we implore you, please don't be jejune. <laughs> I adore that you that you like latched onto that that piece of vocabulary. It was like a gong, like it was like boom, like, <laughs> like being, my head just like, yeah, my head just like snapped at the screen. Like my goodness, George, like such the vocabulary on you. Naive, simplistic, and superficial. Early seventeenth century origin from the Latin jejunus, meaning fasting, barren. The original sense was, quote, without food, hence not intellectually nourishing. Damn, George! (laughs) You savage as fuck, bro! (laughs) That's pretty ugly. So if you guys want to throw some shade on someone, throw a little jejune at them and, uh, you know, make them feel a lot less than... It made me think of Emily in Paris because it wasn't their vagina <laughs> rejuvenation thing that they were selling something like jejune. Something with a V. Vajun, maybe vajun? something like that. I heard, but anyway, I was like, we're are supposed they to about say. The vagina thing from Emily oh my in Paris? God. But also, we're supposed to say Emily in Paris. We're not I, supposed to keep saying Emily in Paris like the Americans we are. <laughs> I, I will not be saying that. <laughs> Let's jump into this episode, Mike, because the last one. It was three hours long, and I know our listeners would love it if we were a little more concise on this one. I have uh, interesting Newport Casino news, but I'm going to actually hold that over to when we have some more time. Maybe I'll just put it up on the Facebook group. Maybe you and I will sit down because we're going to feel ambitious and we're going to do just a odds and ends, a, a cleaning uh, of the A bits cupboards. and bobs kind of thing? Uh, yeah, a notions, a sewing notions tin worth of an episode where we... <laughs> a little we j- dance box. <laughs> yes, because you and I are just collecting these facts left and right, and I cannot be going into detail about them when we have three-hour episodes. Uh, when we have have 45 minutes to talk about uh susan blaine and larry humping and larry's <laughs> attitude with his mother it was really just about the conversation with his mom it really wasn't even about the excitement of what they were doing he was so disrespectful to i think she was mother. out of line to go as far as she went so we let's just jump into this episode this for not another hour <laughs> But no, okay. I want to do though. I want I want to play this clip uh, from early in the episodes when the servants are all losing their minds in the Russell household because it's hitting on a theme that I don't think we saw coming. What's the hurry? She's here. She's here. I just saw her upstairs. Who is? Adelheid, you're shaking. Calm down. No, I must tell you, Miss Turner, the mistress's lady's maid, is here upstairs. Why? Does she want her job back? No, she's here for Mrs. Russell's opera tea as a guest. What? She came in and handed me her coat, and Mr. Church announced her as Mrs. Winterton. I don't understand. Neither do I. Wake up. This is America. You can be anything you want. I should know. I see you've all heard the news. Is it really true that Miss Turner is here? Yes. Mrs. Russell warned me, but not of the specifics. I'm as shocked as anyone, but we've all got a job to do. Joshua Winterton is a very rich man. He has a fortune in property. How do you know? I read the papers. It's not for servants to discuss the guests of their employer. But Miss Turner is hardly just another guest. Her name is now Mrs. Winterton, and she is a friend of the mistress. There's a lot there, but I actually wanted to focus on Chef Josh's comments about reminding us that it's America and you can be anything you want. Because, hold on to that, because now I'm going to replay a small clip from the end of last week's episode. Your former lady's maid is now your neighbor in Newport? Welcome to America. 
And we've heard Jack say throughout this series at the end of last year, when he was at the end of season one, when he was talking to Bridget about it's America, you could be anything you want. Maybe one day we'll be invited to those parties and all of his kind of industriousness that he's tinkering with that we saw in the last episode and, and real ambition and, and status moving something that is and was possible in this time in America versus say in Downton Abbey in, in that setting, which takes place 25 years later in England where status moving is not really allowed. And if someone does, when the chauffeur becomes a husband to one of the Crawley daughters, they're pariahs really in the family. It's really, it goes down hard for them to accept. And I mean, he eventually becomes a beloved part of the family, but it is not an easy transition for him to go to uh, from from chauffeur to son-in-law. But here, I feel like Lord Fellows is really reminding us over and over again this entrepreneurial spirit, this idea of America where a Turner can become a Mrs. Winterton, where Chef, you know, Chef Josh can become Chef Bourdain. You mm-hmm. really can remake yourself. And it's interesting because I wasn't anticipating this celebration of America's possibilities or or is it even actually a celebration because we're using people like Turner being a horrible person and conniving and, and finding her way into a marriage to get ahead and and Josh had to lie about who he was so he can get a so he could get ahead so is it really actually the American dream is being really more depicted here as you have to scheme in order to get ahead or connive or lie or be duplicitous it's not just enough to want to be more you actually have to maybe cajole a little bit i don't think it it needs to have like a negative connotation at all i i do think that the spirit of coming to america and reinventing yourself in some way or the possibility the endless possibilities of being able to be whoever you want to be i i think that's a positive message i mean how people choose to use it, how characters choose to use those opportunities for good or for bad. You know, let's talk about Chef Josh. But he didn't use it to be bad or mean or anything. He just didn't have the background that he knew an upper society woman would want him to have. But he was able to create it because there really wasn't any good way to like check references and check his background. And that's the thing. We were living in this void of information, which I don't know if it's totally lying to not fill in all the blanks if you want to reinvent yourself. So that's going to be my question mark here, I guess, is as we're going through everything with Mrs. Winterton, it is going to be curious to me about how much does her husband know? How much do does anybody have any actual sense of where she came from? Because one of the things that's fascinating to me is how you're just allowed to sort of like appear out of thin air. And it's kind of okay that people aren't exactly sure about you. We had that with Maude Beaton, you know, where we're like, we're not, we don't know exactly her story yet. People kind of put together little, you know, bits and and pieces of what they have about you. But that's about it. So I think people are willing to give anyone a shot. And I think that's got to be looked at as positive. It's interesting you bring up the reinvention aspect of it because we're going through it in this season with the time we're spending with Watson, Nate Collier, mm-hmm. and how he was somebody and then he wasn't. And then he reinvented himself as a valet because it's all he knew to stave off being unhoused. And now he's contemplating uh, moving to California, to San Francisco, and reinvent and having to reinvent himself yet once again 
with another life out there with a manservant and a cook and an apartment paid for and a bank account. A lot of, a lot of reinvention in this show for good or for bad. Maud is a great example. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. And, you know, there's an interesting bit about Maud. Just I'll, I'll bring it up here because when Agnes gets wind of Oscar sniffing around Maud, Agnes doesn't know who she is. She, she, the name doesn't do anything for her. But remember, Maud tells Oscar last week, I know who Agnes is, but didn't know her, just knew of her. So it's funny, Agnes not knowing who she is, especially given that our Stevenson connection of the oldest of old families, you don't get older in New York than Peter Stuyvesant. That connection was proven true with his mother being a Stuyvesant and Stuyvesant Fish and Mamie and that whole connection. It's weird that Agnes doesn't at least know the name. She pulled out Arabella Morgan from Fifth Avenue last week, the mother of a guy who was an oaf, who himself only had the most basic of high prospects. She knew that name, but she doesn't know a Stuyvesant relative. Seems odd to me. But at the same time, willing to like overlook that and keep going because there is no good way to keep track. So even with Agnes being so diligent and knowing so many people, it's not like she said, well, I don't know who Maude Beaton is, so she's off the list. We can't even consider her. Nope, that wasn't it. You're still allowed to be in the mix and be a little unknown. The first question being, of course, does she have money? Uh, Aurora says, I would think so. And she says, then she passes the test for Oscar and for me. So her question really is actually actually less, you know, her connection to the Stuyvesants and more. What's her money status? She needs to be a Stuyvesant or an old money family, but does she have money? An old money family without old money anymore doesn't click the, you know, click the checkbox for for Agnes. But again, no, the, the idea of Maud being this mysterious person and, and reinvention is, who is she? We, we don't know. But who is Oscar? Oscar is currently also reinventing himself. He's deep in the middle of reinventing himself. On the topic of Oscar and reinvention and, and who we are and America and the old world, I want to jump right to Oscar Wilde. Uh, let's play this clip and then let's break down the Irish poet and playwright. Who is Miss Russell? One of your famous heiresses, I suppose. How clever you are, Mr. Wilde. Yes, one of the greatest of her year. Well, it seems we're in a room full of young heiresses. Which is your cousin, Santana? I shouldn't admit it, but of course you're right. He has his eye on Miss Beaton now. And the young man with him? John Adams. He's an old friend of Oscar's. Yes, indeed, yes. I see that getting rather complicated. I don't know what you mean. Or should you? You're far too well brought up. Have you not heard of the opera battle that's being waged at the moment? Oh, indeed I have, though it seems strange to me to wage a war over that yellow brick brewery on Broadway and 39th Street. <laughs> Is that fair? No, you're quite right. If it were actually a brewery, someone might hope to get some pleasure from it. <laughs> we're proud of our opera, Mr. Wilde. It has been my experience that you are proud of many things that would not translate to the old world. But is the old world better? Not better, exactly. Just more tested by time. That line of the old world, maybe not better, but more tested by time, I think that was a line that you and I both scribbled down immediately when we heard it. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept in this larger conversation of America and who you are and reinventing yourself, because th that's actually two clips 
cut together because there's a there's a couple seconds space there where Oscar is with Aurora and then it moves on to later in the party where with Oscar and Aurora and more other people standing around but he basically outs John and Oscar to her but she's so blissfully naive she doesn't catch it anyone paying attention with the least amount of sense to uh, you know do you know what i'm talking about yes we all know what you're talking about i think picks up on what he's saying there and then to continue it into the analogy of you're all very pleased with yourselves about things that would not fly in the old world it's it's really plays into this idea of america and reinvention and you can be anything you want to be or you can lie to yourself or to others as much as you want and hide in plain sight it's it's interesting to me i think uh, so i hesitate about the lying and any of that kind of talk i feel a little bit like that's a little too harsh to people i think that a lot of people have come to the city to start fresh i don't think you're necessarily lying when you just want to put the past in the past and start off on a new foot. I don't want to cast every single person as a liar. I don't think that Watson is a liar. I, I agree, actually, because I, I, originally I was thinking of John and Oscar, but they actually are not lying to themselves. They very much know no. who they are. And so it's actually, so it's more they're having to, well, Oscar especially, having to live this this life that he doesn't want to lead. So it's actually not lying, not lying to himself. And, yeah. and John Adams, very much not. I'm going to play his clip in a second, because again, it goes towards who are you and are you okay with yourself and, and getting along in America at this time and, and what flies and what's acceptable and what's not. Do you want to hear? Because I think you sure. actually took to this clip. This sure, is the John ahead. Adams clip about uh, being okay with yourself. So you've met the charming Miss Beaton. I suppose it was only a matter of time. I like her very much. Are you here with Gladys Russell? As a friend. What if she wants more from you? She'll be disappointed, as I'm already spoken for. Have you and I met? No, but I'll introduce you soon. Are you happy with him? Oscar, I'm happy with me. That's as much as I need or hope for. I rather envy. I'm happy with me. What more can you ask from your life? But is that enough if the rest of the world is not happy with who you are? And I think that's what Oscar is wrestling with. For sure. I mean, getting back to what Oscar Wilde said about the old money, new money, and the concept of of the old ways just being more tested, I really enjoyed that explanation because I think that it kind of puts a lot of this idea of like something has to be better than the other in order to continue just off the table. Like this isn't about what's better. This is about what can stand the test of time. And the reality is that the way that the old money has been functioning worked for a long time. But now when we introduce this concept of people being able to create their own destinies, people being able to recreate their their own families, deciding where they come from, deciding what they want to tell about themselves. And again, I'm not maybe it, we could say it's like lies of omission because people aren't choosing to tell all their dirty laundry. But I don't necessarily see it as, you know, straight up lying about things. It's just Coming forward and saying like, okay, there are certain parts of my life that are not going to help me get ahead. So if I want to get ahead, I have to leave those things to the side. I can't really be talking about those things. If you're new money, what is your argument against the concept that old money 
simply rises to the top because they're more tested. What do you think is the, the counterpoint to that for new money? We hope to be old money one day, but we're here now and we're doing the work to earn the money that you have only been caretaker of, but we are actually closer to the spirit of your ancestors, of your Peter Stuyvesant's and your founding Vanderbilt and founding Astor family and founding Drexel family. We're making the money like they did while you just sit on it and protect it and, and grasp, to, grasp to it and cling to it. You don't add to it. None of these old money families really are actively adding to their fortunes. They're just mixing them and matching them and trying to protect them and 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 spend them as slowly as humanly possible. George and Bartha approach their fortune completely different. They're willing to take the big swing and just make another fortune if they have to. I think that's the biggest defining difference is new money lives without fear of what may come because they don't worry that they can redo it all over again. The old money lives in nothing but fear because they've lost the ability to recreate the circumstances of their fortune. So they only know how to cling to it and protect it. So but getting back to the exact wording that Wild uses and saying that old money is only better because it's more tested by time. Just talking about that, not talking about whether or not you can regain your fortune, whether or not, you know, just talking about that. Is there a counterpoint to th those exact words? Like what's the opposite or what's the, what's the argument that you say? Because to me, what I would say is none of us can be old money without first having to get the money. So I understand that you guys are generations into this, but you don't need to look down on us because yeah, you're right. You guys have been great caretakers of the money and you are showing that you can be tested by time and you've done it, but we deserve a shot to see if our wealth and our status can withstand the test of time. We deserve that shot. So we're not we're not debating with you that your money is awesome and that you guys have been fantastic caretakers, but you cannot deny us the opportunity to also test our own fortunes and see if our families can join yours. I think there's also an aspect of just because it stood the test of time doesn't make it the right policy. Look at slavery, look at segregation, look at homosexuality. I mean, this conversation coming from Oscar Wilde is actually more than a little bit ironic because Oscar Wilde himself at this very moment was living a closeted homosexual life that would eventually lead him to prison when it was exposed. He's not saying he backs that comment. No, he's no. just saying he's and because she's saying like, what's the big difference? And he, he's like, I, I don't think that, you know, the old world is better. It's just that it has been tested by time and it has worked for X amount of time. So people are still doing it. But you're totally right. Obviously, you know, the rules of society actually aren't working. A lot of people are having to live, you know, on the fringes or in some way have like, a, you know, split lives where they're doing multiple things. I mean, that doesn't really work then. The society isn't actually truly testing what the the citizens of their of their society are doing. Not really. People are just ending up hiding everything. What's the Taylor Swift thing? Uh, she says, I don't want to keep secrets just to keep you. It's like that. It's like if you're old money, you got to sit around and keep all the secrets all the time in order to like manage to make it through this. And some of the new money is like, mm, like, can we like be a little more ourselves sometimes, you know? 
there, there's something interesting too, just in talking about this and the t- t- you know standing the test of time and is it good? Is it better? I, I, I don't know what it is, but it's it's just been there. Is uh, Oscar Wilde himself? This play that we're watching, this was his very first play uh, that's being that they're all attending. It's called Vera or the Nihilists, and it tells the story of Vera, who is an assassin. It's essentially based on a real person and this political group for in 2023 we would call them a terrorist group honestly they were committed to trying to assassinate the czar of russia and oscar wilde becomes kind of enamored by this group and their ideals and actually this play was originally written in 1880 he writes it and he is getting ready to put it on in england in 1881 except for in 1881 the nihilists actually do in fact assassinate in real life the current russian czar there was already growing political backlash against the movement in england because there was a lot of sympathy for what these nihilists were talking about and so the english government was already wary of it plus he is an he is an irishman and the the english imposition on ireland was in full force and there was a lot of backlash growing there so bowing to the political pressure oscar wilde actually cancels the 1881 performance and it lays dormant until 1883 when it comes to america and in fact it only plays for one week it opens on august 20th which is interesting because it feels like the show maybe is moving us way far ahead into the summer because historically this show opens on august 20th marie prescott does play vera just like they mentioned in, in this episode it only runs for one week initial reviews were good but then they turned bad and then the box office dried up within a week it closed at the union square theater that's what's being depicted here oscar wilde himself even says when they're asking about how the audience received it he says i don't think it'll run well he was right a week later it would be closed it was his first play and it was a complete flop it's very it's revived very little but it's interesting that it's a play about people usurping and upending the apple cart of government and society and and literally overthrowing the society as we know it in the context of this conversation that we've now connected to four different characters and a lot of different plot lines there has to be something there for us to be able to make not outrageous connections to reinvention who who's your authentic self and the american backdrop I think it was brilliant to bring in Oscar Wilde as this glimpse, I guess, into this other idea of what's going on in society, because it you can kind of separate yourself a little bit when you learn a little bit about the play and you understand what's going on. And then when you hear Oscar Wilde like discuss society, I don't he has a really interesting point of view that allows us to be like outside of our main characters and our main storylines. I'm really glad we added him in and we added this play in. There was a lot going on from the real context there, but of course, a lot goes on during the play after the play as well with our with our characters for those that are looking for the exact you know if you're into it what we see on stage is the actual end of act one jordan waller is playing oscar wilde i feel like we have to give a shout out to him and we have to give a shout out to his costuming which made him look very much like willy wonka to me and which immediately put me at ease but also a little unease as well because because willy wonka is a bit of a scamp he's a bit of a minx and I feel like Oscar Wilde, a little bit of an agent of chaos in this scene. I would agree with you very much. I, I actually was quite taken aback that he was speaking so 
blatantly with Aurora. He was saying too much about Oscar and John. And I was really surprised that he would be just very casual with his comments because I, I mean, he wasn't being quiet at all about it. And of course, Aurora was like, oh, what are you talking about? But still, there was something about that that was like, this guy is like a live wire, you know, yeah, like just, he's, just, he's, just, cocktails everywhere, he's yeah. just everywhere and he, he could be blowing up anybody's spot here. Like he's just glancing around the room, making commentary. So he was an interesting ad, but cool. Give us some different opportunities. I mean, if that doesn't stick in Aurora's back of her head somewhere, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to be kind of bummed out if that doesn't play out. That at some point she clicks into what he said. Especially in light of now matching him with Maud Beaton, who by all visual optics, her and Oscar are getting along famously and they're joking and they're laughing. She She's enjoying what he promised Gladys. I'm going to make you laugh. Um, you know, you're going to be able to voice your opinion, you know, and, and we're going to kind of get along. It, it It's kind of working out. She seemed, she seemed more than happy to be in his company and attend this function that society seemingly required the young people to be at this night. Interesting is a weasel word. Made me laugh out loud. I loved how he delivered it. I love how he said it. And I just love the idea of it. When you don't want to speak truth to power and you say something like, it was interesting. Interesting is a weasel word. Uh, Hello. I think that when we started this podcast network, I actually had a list of synonyms that I provided all of our hosts to say, stop saying the word interesting. So yeah, I'm all for it. And uh, you guys who are listening, I'm sure now you're going to hear a thousand times we're probably going to use the word interesting just because now it's stuck in our heads. I'm going to try and use fascinating instead. I'm going to just try to give a harder opinion, whether it's good or bad. I'm just going to be more with like, you know, not so neutral. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say how I feel. Be happy with who you are. Be John Adams of your life. I am John Adams. I'm over here living my best life. Doing my own thing. We can't get away from deceit and and hiding and and lies. It, It is all over this episode. We have to get to the Russell House. And Bertha and George and Miss Turner, now now Mrs. Winterton. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Did you see this coming? Did you? I mean, we knew that, that this is what was going to be happening. But to actually have the big twist and the big reveal and have Turner be so nasty and ready to get Bertha. We have to bookend it with the two clips that really show Bertha at the beginning, you know, how it started and how it's going is very much Bertha's story in this episode because she begins this episode with with a little too much confidence, not fearing Miss Turner coming into her house nearly enough, which George is obviously wary of. And obviously the servants, once they catch wind of who's in the house, they all react, I think, the way we're all reacting bertha is maybe being a little too cool for school so let's let's bookend the the bertha clips here and and see where we can figure out how we're doing mr mcallister has written he's coming to my tea today mcallister is playing a complicated game i'd like to be there when mrs astor finds out it's about to get more complicated than he knows why do you say that you'll find out by the way he's bringing mrs winterton with him you mean turner yes into our home You'll allow that. McAllister thinks some people will take a box at the Met, even if they already have one at the Academy. Wouldn't they be punished? Isn't lending status to the new house a serious crime? The point is, we need the old crowd, and Joshua Winterton is a charter member. If they take a box, any number may follow. 
And you don't object to courting your former servant. I can't afford to object, even if it sticks in my craw. But can she be trusted? She won't want anyone to know she was once a lady's maid. I have the upper hand where that's concerned. Flowers are ready for your inspection, madam. Thank you. Church, I should explain that one of my guests today may surprise you, but please don't show it. Of course, ma'am. I need to know what your take on this is. Let's start with the easy question first. Why doesn't she give Church more of a heads up on the specifics? Just saying it's the end of that clip we just played. Just saying a guest will surprise you. What is this? Is, is this a gotcha show? Is this is is this Alan Fudd's hidden camera show? <laughs> I think it was for us to be able to, of course, have the visual twist, you know, of what's going to happen. And, and if she just said it in words right then, it wouldn't have had the impact that it had on everybody. Plus, there is some sense of like, I don't owe the staff any explanation of who my guests are. Like, I'm all I'm asking church to do is to not have any type of reaction because I don't want to be embarrassed. But after that, I don't owe you any other explanation of who I've invited to my home. I think that's where it lies in principle. But I think in practice, yeah, she should have just told church who it was so that he could prepare the staff so that everybody could behave properly and appropriately. Again, not as fun, not as twist, not as not as uh, wild and crazy as a uh, as we have the responses of all the staff, all the gasping and the and the panic in their faces. We're going to hear it later when uh, Adelheid is running through the house screaming, she's here, she's here. Again, more details, more details. Adelheid, who is here? The, the... I know, but like, I know it's been a while since season one. We talked about that. It's been like 18 months. But we really watched those episodes a whole bunch. And like, yeah, Turner was not great in their household. Don't get me wrong or anything. But the way she's talking... Like Turner did something specifically to the staff that would be so heinous and so insane that just seeing her would make them all explode, which... The only you know. thing towards that is Adelheid is an interesting case as far as the servants go with Miss Turner because she's so young right. and actively is the one who replaced Turner and a job that we know that she hasn't fully solidified yet. So if anyone is going to have such an over-the-top reaction, it actually made a lot of sense to me that it would be her because right. she literally jumped in the void left by Turner's departure. I was more amused by the she's here, she's here without more details. You know, it's, she's very much like her her mistress for whom she waits on. We just, we say words, but don't give enough details. Who is here? What, what is happening? Why are well, you it implies that we would all know who it was, but that implies that she did something that was so completely memorable to the staff that they, of course, she she could only be one person. That could be the only she, capital S, that it could possibly be. Yes, Turner was absolutely chaos and disruption, of course, to Bertha and, and uh, George. We're going to talk a lot about that, I'm sure. But to the staff... She with a capital S is only it's, she's like the the, the one we knew, we do not say her name. That seemed like a little bit of a stretch. Let's get to the harder part of that clip, though. 
Is Bertha too... She seems a little too cocky to me. Mm, at least not giving enough credence or maybe being too flip. Maybe that's maybe that's the, how I'm trying to say. She's being too flip about Turner coming into her house. That this is a woman that she knows that since dismissing her from her employment, which can't be more than a year, right? we're, we're talking a year tops based on if you go from the beginning of the first season to where we are now, now we're just at about a year give or take a month in either direction to having married a, a very wealthy old money man this is, feels like someone you should not be underestimating as you allow them into your it's it's a very fox in the hen house is it fox or rooster What's yeah, the, fox, fox? Fox. yeah it's a very much like allowing a fox into the hen house and 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 assuming you'll be able to handle it i, I worry she's being too or or not concerned enough i'm curious how you took it and and how her attitude struck you here that's where the rub is, is that she is being too arrogant. She's assuming she has 150% of the information that's available, and she doesn't. That is where all the betrayal and all the humiliation comes from, is really not what Turner says as much as all of the assumptions that Bertha made that she had her finger in every pie and knew everything about what was going on everywhere. And it turns out... Ah, there's stuff going on in your own house you don't even know about. That's the big explosive moment. Right. And I think ultimately it comes down to a question of, as far as us analyzing it, when Turner says he never told you about us, oh and even, even with nothing actually having happened, the question is, what is worse, George not telling her or learning about what she didn't know she didn't know from Turner instead of George? Like the idea that it doesn't even matter that nothing happened between them. And I, and I think that... That question gets fleshed out more in the bookend clip. So we saw we saw Bertha just now very much on top of the world, ready to seize new money into the Met. Let's see after it's fallen down. We also have to talk about George's reaction to this. I'm calling this clip reasoning, but I really should have called it betrayal. What happened between you and Turner? What did she tell you? Just answer the question. <sighs> Nothing happened. Except? Except what? She came into my room one night. At first, I thought it was you. But the lamp revealed that I was wrong. Was it just your room or your bed? My bed. Was she clothed? Answer me! No. But I would never betray you. You already have! Nothing happened. As soon as I knew it wasn't you, I got out of bed. <laughs> Did she? Not immediately, so I ordered her to leave. But you never told me. Because there was nothing to tell. It seems to me there was a great deal to tell. She didn't matter to me in the least. And there was no chance anything was going to happen. But I knew you depended on her. It didn't make sense to blow up the house because of her stupid mistake. So you allowed me to be waited on? To have my hair arranged? My clothes chosen? My bath run by a woman who'd been naked with my husband? It's disgusting! I'm sorry if it was a bad decision. Decision! I call that betrayal! Uh, Carrie Coon's so fucking good. 
I mean, just the, the veins in her neck popping, the, the gasping for breath, the way she's delivering the lines, just some A-plus work right there. I think she did an excellent job of explaining to any audience member who was like, what's the big deal? When she goes through the whole thing of like picking my clothes, running my bath, like being in these intimate situations with me when unbeknownst to me, she, you know, she's been naked with my husband. Like, I got to tell you that part when she says in your room or in your bed and when he says in my bed, I saw that scene and when he said it. I still like gasped because I knew what it was and I know what happened. But when you really just lay it out there like that, George, (laughs) you could not have made a worse choice. I think we all can take some real marriage advice from what not to do based on how George conducts himself in this episode. We began the episode by saying, don't refer to your significant other as being jejun. That's never going to get you the reaction you're looking for. Also, don't piecemeal out your explanation. When your wife asks you what did what happened, your first response should not be, what did she tell you? That is not an answer to the question that was asked of you, George. You cannot respond. And also, with- like, could that sound more guilty and nuts? Like, come on. Like, it just, uh, but really, it I'm really, I'm going to tell you honestly, as much as she went. So I don't want right. to get out anything more. The whole thing was ripping my heart out. It really was because I care about these two characters. And this was always this, like, waiting little bomb to explode. And it just really hurts my heart. It really, really hurts my heart because even when something, when nothing happens, nothing happens at all. When you are with another woman, I don't care if you're sitting on the bed. I don't care if y'all just got together for a little reunion to chitty chat together. This is unacceptable. What you're doing, sitting on someone's bed, laying in someone's bed, any of this stuff, he should have known everything inside of should have run cold and should have said, I would have bellowed from the bedroom like, Bertha! (laughs) You and I have spent a lot of time uh, constructing what George should have done in this scenario. I'm telling you, I would not only be screaming, but I would also like, because I would want everyone to come running. Everybody. So that they could all see what was going on and my sheer disgust and terror of the situation. So George... I don't know if there was any point in time past that night that he could have told her that there wouldn't have been layers of betrayal. So it's like he only had that split second to like not just throw her out, but like expose the entire situation to everybody. Which begs the question, is he being sincere here? And I know we discussed this last season when this episode aired, but now we're a year on and and let's revisit it because like so many things in life, clarity comes only in hindsight. Let's think about what George is saying here. Is he being sincere in his reasoning of you relied on her so much that I didn't want to blow up the house and all the work you were trying to do at that time? The the last thing you needed was to go through a a lady's maid search and, and all of that for what amounted to a dumb mistake because nothing happened. It it seems very logical from a guy's point of view, but it seems extremely obtuse 
if you introduce even the the smallest smidge of emotion and and EQ meter into the situation, it cannot sound good. The second you add any kind of emotional aspect to it, and he's being he's being too Vulcan about it. He's being too cut and dry because nothing happened because I didn't sleep with her because I remained clothed and got out of bed right away. It's not actually an issue, and you suffered no indignity by having her continue to wait on you. In fact, I did you a favor. That's kind of the position he's taking. It seems very indefensible in hindsight. I would want to murder him. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, it, the whole thing. I got to tell you, even just saying things like, I thought she was you. Oh, yeah. Until I turned on, until the lamp revealed it wasn't. Are you kidding me? I'm like that dime a dozen that you can't recognize your own wife of 20 plus years. I don't care how dimly lit that room is. The smell, the touch, the the essence of her walking there. Are you joking me? I mean, and then just to continue on. Every word he said, every phrase he said literally was the wrong choice. And how he you know. There is nothing. The concept of not disrupting the house is so paper thin. This entire argument of like, you had such an intimate relationship with her. I thought this was so important. No, that's exactly why you tell me. Because I do have an intimate relationship and Lord knows I would never want to speak to that person again had I known that they were going behind my back. And like, let's be super clear. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't like a a happenstance situation. They didn't bump into each other in the hall. Turner had been making these steps and making these choices this whole time to get closer to him. That wasn't the one and only inappropriate interaction between them. And I'm not saying ever went that far, but she was always being a little too much around George. Again, I'm just going back. You like lost me at you didn't know it was me coming in the room. Uh, yeah. I'm done. Like, oh, how many people you slept with then, pal, that you can't tell one from another? It's right along the same sign of it, 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 everything he says here is bad and comes out bad. Sounds so tin, inadequate. But then he also makes her drag out every detail. Yes. Nothing happened. Then he pauses. Literally an ellipsis comes across the screen and then he says except, except what? Except no. she was in our bed. Was she clothed? No. Were you in bed? Yes. Like he makes it. Like just, just, just get it out. Don't. Uh, this is your very last chance to just tell her the complete story and you're not even doing that. You're still only piecemealing it insofar as it will help you like you're only willing to tell her it seems george the very bare bones details to get her off your back and end this conversation and gaslight her into thinking like all this other stuff gaslight her into thinking well she was so important to you you needed her i was just looking out for you i mean that's a great point that's a great point he really does he really does put it on her yeah. yeah, to like suddenly it's like if only you weren't always so needy of these people and you could just get your own stuff together, then but you rely on her so much. I couldn't just take her out from under you. Oh my God, get out of here with this. But I want to be clear. I actually think the writing is spot on. I think this is exactly how this conversation would go. When you're talking about piecemealing it out, uh, I've had conversations with guys and I've had things where I've said, like, and then what happened? And then what happened? And do you think that, ha- like, and it's like, are you kidding me? Why are you making me jump through these hoops like to find out the real information? The fact that you won't just tell me makes this so much worse. I think Morgan Spector and Carrie Coon actually just kill it in the scene. I think actually all of the scenes they have really speak of a wall coming up 
flying up out of the ground that was never, ever there before, and neither of them knowing how to proceed. And both of them just being kind of devastated at, and for their own reasons, at, at, at the obstacle that they now find between them, because they've never, ever had to experience it before. One of the bedrock features of this show has been the steadfast, rock-solid, down deep into the Earth's core marriage of George and Bertha. And now it is torn asunder. We're going to our wife and saying, my business doesn't stop just because we had a falling out. Bro, it's more than a falling out. What are you even talking about? You, I, He says, I made a mistake, an error in judgment, but I don't know what else to say on the subject. Now, I give him credit. He came to saying I made a mistake quicker than, say, Mr. Scott did about lying about a dead child. Still not great. There is a lack of contrition on this man's part that is hard to swallow. I think that a lot of people and our listening audience needs to remember, and we're, we're seeing this happening with Gladys and Marion and even Ada. Remember the threat of what would happen if Turner did turn George's head? What if George did cast Bertha out? What if he did take her in and decide that she was the new Mrs. Russell? What happens to Bertha, everybody? Does she get a job? Does she get child support? Does she get a home? Does she get taken? No, guys, no. She gets tossed in the cold. Women don't have any way to support themselves. Not cool. So like this is so much bigger than what it would be today because busting a house means think go back to the family where the husband had killed himself in the season one and the wife was just beside herself because once a marriage is busted, the lack of access to money and to um, just being taken care of in any sort of way really dries up. So there's a lot going on here. It's beyond just your your wedding vows and everything else. Like there is like these societal rungs that everybody is standing on that he just like shook that whole ladder. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows who's going to end up on top? And it's like, oh my God, you have no idea what how intimidating this is. You know, the thing I think that really drove it home for him about how far in the doghouse he was, was he makes a move towards her after trying to say he was going to make it up or, or, or I don't remember exactly what he said, but he made a move towards her like we have seen George and Bertha do towards each other where he pulls her in very sexily and then like would give her a kiss. We saw it in just the last episode when he surprises her in Newport and then they go outside and he pins her up against the wall and kisses her. And, you know, as the camera pans away, we know they're about to go to the boneyard. He tries that here and she rebuffs him and it's the first time we've ever seen that i noted it because we have spent so much time talking about how charged these two are together intellectually and romantically and sexually the feel that frostiness come like no nobody you can't hump or kiss your way out of this like i feel like even george understood then at that point man i really fucked up here so we then we have to get then to the kind of the denouement of this argument that goes on throughout the episode bertha has to come to George to ask for help because the Duke of Buckingham is coming. We're not going to talk about the Duke this week. That's for next week. We're not going to talk about the Kunar line or the ship he is going to be on. We're, we're going to get into that next week. But she comes to him and asks him to use his contacts to try and find out where he's going to be staying and, and get an in. She wants an introduction. He says, if I do this, and he's, he's trying to be all cute and coy. And he's, mm -hmm. If I do this, will I be out of the doghouse? And I'm proud of her for saying 
will talk if you can get all of my list of demands here. But she does kind of give a little bit of like a a little bit of a smirk or a like a like I'll see you upstairs kind of thing if you can make this happen. I think I want her to be mad at him a little bit longer. Yeah, no, I just took it that she was like super pissed and like he can say whatever he wants and I cue however he wants and she can. I, I think if you, you saw guys, smirk, you, you, it was, you picked up on that though. He thought he was like we're smoothing it all over. But like now. a condescending smirk she mm-hmm. gave back to him, like a uh, nice friggin' try. Like how about you just do what I told you to do? Like I don't, I don't think it was anything like he even remotely cracked that door. I, I think it was like uh uh-uh. uh, I can see right through you. Oh, and he even baits her, too, because she says to him, uh, what if I get found out that it and it doesn't apply to my business? And she says, you just have to trust me, George. And he says, I do trust you more, I think, than you trust me. And she does not say, no, no, honey, I trust you. She just lets it dangle out there. George, it, you're, you're, you're not what a dumb out of... idea to bring up the idea of trust right now. Right. That was dumb, dude. Well, right. He should have just silently taken when she says, you have to trust me. He should have just he should have just nodded his head solemnly. Hey, if silence is so important to Mr. George Russell, if keeping quiet is so important to him, then how's about you shut up, George? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I mean, this Duke of Buckingham, the Russells are going to have to be a unified front because, you know what? Bertha does show up for the Henderson lunch. Granted, I don't think she goes as hard into hostess duty as she would have had this issue not been happening but she is more than uh, more than accommodating she's perfectly lovely during the lunch uh, you know henderson is straight out of blue collar central casting with the ill-fitting suit and the accent the way he's holding the four uh, the the spoon did you notice how he, he's holding yes. a spoon like he's never held a spoon before yeah well he definitely isn't doing any like high-end manners Right. And they're just like, they're just giving you exactly who this guy is from the second he gets out of the carriage and looks straight up in the air like a tourist in Manhattan looking at a skyscraper for the first time. This guy is not in Kansas anymore. Bertha treats him perfectly lovely. He asks about his wife and we learn about the dressmaker and wouldn't it be nice if she could retire? And really, she does her duty even though she wants to murder George. And I think George will do his duty to her and find out what he can about the Duke of Buckingham. But George has to understand it is not a quid pro quo situation. George has to understand just as his business doesn't stop when they fall out, Bertha's business doesn't stop when they fall out either. This is a a really amazing way to go from a loving couple to simply business partners to where you there's no emotion. It's all. Yeah, we got to get that. Like the Russell name becomes just like a business name on top of the house and you're just running it. But there's no more of that, you know, sweetness and light between the two of you. That is a terrible situation. And I think a lot of marriages get to that point. I'm really hopeful. I, I think that that Bertha and George have shown us for a season and a half almost now that that they are a solid partnership. So I hope that we see this, you know, wind up quickly, but I really need to see some honest apology out of George that this is like insane. And the fact that you don't understand exactly how bad this was, at least at this point, uh, I just, I need him to get his head out of the sand and just pay attention. 
Uh, one upside of this is the only upside of this argument is actually in Gladys's favor, and we don't need to go back over it, but I just wanted to point out Gladys benefits from this argument because her mother puts up absolutely zero fight when she comes to get permission to go to the Oscar Wilde play with John Adams as her escort. She is confused. There is a palpable look of confusion on Gladys's face about why it was so easy to get permission to go to the Union Square Theater to watch this play. It actually amused me. She looks so she she looks so dumbfounded that her mother was just saying yes without any kind of struggle. Uh, so. I think that that points to, again, what I just said about about having a long-term relationship that's actually been very good. It's not like Gladys walked out and said, oh, y'all are fighting again. That's when she acts like this. No, nope, we didn't get that. We got utter confusion from a woman who is like almost in her 20s. That means this couple hasn't endured this type of stuff. You know, this is so fresh and so just like undread ground that now they have to figure out how to get through this. And we have to decide as an audience how this affects our opinion of George. Yeah, I mean, I think George is going to have to really tread lightly and and act with the right contrition and the right reflection going forward in order to win back, I think, the audience. I do want to throw this out. It does it does beg the question and, and, you know, just to play not exactly devil's advocate, but just a little bit different viewpoint on this. How responsible are any of us when someone else hits on us? And if you can play the game of like, oh, well, what were you wearing or what were you doing? Forget about all that. How much responsibility is the person who has somebody make a move on them when they didn't do anything? That What do we think about the idea that George was alone in his bedroom, in his bed? It's not like he was horsing around at a party, half drunk, blah, 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 blah. No, he was in his room, in his bed. How much responsibility does that person have about what Turner does? Well, clearly, I mean, George takes the position that he he was an innocent bystander here. He was he was he was an aggrieved party. He was not a culpable party, and that's clearly the position he's taking. I would hope, in the hindsight of this, though, that his lack of transparency at the jump is something that, if given the situation again, if let's say Adelheid loses her mind and shows up, <laughs> that he would handle this very differently and be much more proactive. You can't fix what you have done already, right? The The best thing you can do is learn from it, and so it doesn't happen again. So George can't undo that night, but I would like to think that if George was in this position again, he would handle this in a way that honored his wife better. Well, he wasn't at all transparent, so I would hope that he would be transparent in a timely fashion. That shows growth, and that shows recognizing what you did before was wrong, and now you are you are handling it correctly. Will he? I don't know. I don't know if he believes yet that he was actually in the wrong with how he behaved. He has to get to that point in order to move on, I think, as a character. I wish they gave us like one or two other reasons beyond the like, she was a trusted worker for you. I think it was embarrassing for him. I honestly, I think the unspoken thing is, I think then he, he was should embarrassed. Have said that. I think he should have said that because maybe some amount of understanding would come into the play here. Paralysis of the situation of I had, I, I was completely off guard, caught completely off guard by the situation 
and I fr- like literal, literally paralyzed in how to handle it, and I was mortified and embarrassed for myself just being in this position that the idea that he did something that allowed Turner to think that she could get away with this and that maybe something would happen. You know, all of those thoughts. I would think, I would hope that he would have some of that. I also think a guy who is as powerful as George is, who is as used to having his way in this time period, probably would have an immense amount of embarrassment at being able to admit that, certainly. Um, But I think there has to be an aspect of that here because it is so wild. It is so out of the way. And from his point, he doesn't look at Turner. There's no aspect of George at all in season one. Rewatch it. He never glances at her more than he absolutely has to as a human being to another human being. So it really, I think, does catch him off guard. He's not it's not like the footman Peter that we see winking and smiling at Turner when she's in the house. And then he's spilling all the tea about her plans to, to land winter those two clearly have been fucking they probably still are that smile that they exchange like that's a guy who would not who would be totally okay if she showed up in his bed george i think was truly dumbfounded by it he handled it so poorly because he puts it on i did it for you instead of saying instead of saying i was so embarrassed by it i just wanted it to go away and act like it never happened that's the truth of the situation george acted like he did i think i believe deeply george acted like he did because he was embarrassed at the situation and wanted to pretend like it never happened i'll go with you and i and i just i just hope that they find a way back to each other that's what i mainly need to happen right now because there's so many things going on in the story that you know we want to know about what's going on with george and henderson and work that way and we want bertha to do everything good but we know that these things can't happen if these two don't come back to center and find their strength together we need that i i have good faith in lord fellows that he will bring them back together but ouch it hurts it hurts to 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 think about any of that no, I mean, they're, they're such a bedrock relationship. You know, it's interesting. I never really paid attention to it. You know, Carrie Coon and Morgan Spector are the top two built people in this show before Louisa Jacobs, and she comes third. So when we talk about whose story is this really, we've, we've said it so many times. We've talked about it so many times over these episodes. Whose story is this really? And I think we, we both very much think that this is Bertha's story as much as it's anyone's story. It's interesting to me, casting-wise, when you watch the credits, Carrie Coon, Morgan Spector, who I didn't know Morgan Spector really from anything prior to this show. Certainly, I, I actually knew Oscar Van Ryde, uh, you know, uh, uh Blake Ritson. Blake, I believe his, his last name is Ritson. I actually knew him from other shows that I had watched. So I actually didn't know Morgan Spector. So it's interesting to me that the the credits are even telling us this is George and Bertha that you need to be watching. And so for them to be at this point, this this very shaky ground, it, it hurts. It should hurt all of our hearts and we should all be worried about them because if they can't make it with with as much as they have going for them, ma'am, I think maybe we're all in trouble. I agree. I agree. Let's pivot to George and the Hendersons, because we do have to come back to Bertha and the Opera Wars, which part of this winter tin was just a ruse, but there is stuff to talk about there, but that's going to lead us into the Van Rynes. So let's finish George. Let's finish George and Mr. Henderson. When you say George and the Hendersons, it's like Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> trying very hard it. not to make a Harry and the Hendersons joke it's in my head every time funny. I see it. It's like... I can't help it. 
let's start with the premise of every man living has a price. I think my life experience and my job and what I do day in and day out has reinforced that idea that maybe every man has a price. Every man living has a price. That's the quote that George gives to Mr. Clay. But so far, at least as far as we have come in this show, Mr. Henderson does not seem to have a price. What's your take on Mr. Henderson insofar as his conversation with George and the way he turns down a comfortable life for his wife, who wouldn't have to be a dressmaker anymore, turns down the money and power that George is offering him here, turns down a better life for his his son, I think it was his son, to, to go to the best schools in order to honor his fellow working men and their conditions that he just finds to be an, ex- an existence, but not a life. I mean, I think that generally speaking, yes, I think everybody has a price, to be honest with you. And I it, it can be very different prices um and it doesn't necessarily just have to be money for some people it's it's very different but everybody has currency we i've talked about it a lot when you talk about little kids like finding their currency figuring out what it is that that means something to them here's the thing henderson does have a price he does but it comes in the form of not his personal wealth but doing right by his fellow workers. So he does have a price. He does want better working conditions. He does want more money. He does want more everything. But he doesn't just want it for himself. He wants it for everyone around him. So I don't think that that's not having a price. It's just a little different than George and, say, Clay may have thought about it. You know, it's not an individual price. It is the price of all of these people. George keeps coming at him with... A lot of different tactics. He uses, first he uses, I can give you money, I can give you power. With the the six-fingered man defense from Princess Bride, I can give you wealth, yes. I can give you money and women, yes. You can't give it back my father, you son of a bitch. The Inigo Montoya, you killed my father defense. He, he turns that down, right? Then he goes to, he gets on the, he goes on the, on the offense. He says, I pay workers a fair wage. I pay them the market wage. If they don't want to work, step aside. There's a ton of people who do want to work for me. And Mr. Henderson leans forward at this point and says, that's what you brought me to New York to say? So that tactic doesn't work. Then George goes into his final pitch. Let's take a listen to it, because I think this is kind of where this whole conversation falls apart insofar as George sealing the deal with Mr. Henderson. And I'm curious if we can maybe role play a way that this could have gone better for George. Let's take a listen. We cannot make the world a padded cell, even for the comfort of your workers. Things are changing, Mr. Russell. Unions are stronger now. They will grow stronger still, and you will have to deal with them. I am a man of business, and I have jobs to offer in my mills, in my factories, and on my railroads. And I pay the going rate. If your men don't want to work for me, then I suggest they step aside and make way for the many who do. Is that all you have to say? Did I come to New York to hear that? Not quite. What if I offered you a job in management? Is there any chance that you might take it? Why would I? To see your children healthy, well-fed, and in the best schools? To let your wife give up her sewing if she so wishes? To be a figure in the community, valued and admired? So it would be to my own advantage? Indeed it would. And how would that help the workforce? Oh, I see how it is. You are St. Michael with a flaming sword, and I am just a greedy robber baron. (laughs) You use the phrase, not I. He cycles in that clip, George cycles through several different negotiating tactics and doesn't get Henderson to bite at any of them. 
How would you, if you're George in that situation and you want to not give up, not give in to Henderson and the steelworkers' demands, but want to walk away with a, a deal, how do you pitch Henderson? What's your approach to get him on your side? Because I think I think there is a way for George to do that, possibly. I'm curious what your take is. So you guys, he's catching me totally out here because I did not pre-plan this. However, this is what I think I would do. I think this is when I would create the middleman. This is when I would create middle management. I would say it's not feasible for me to give everybody a raise, but I understand that you're saying that those with more experience or those with more leadership qualities or those who have shown whatever allegiance to me should reflect that in their salary, should reflect that maybe in their work hours or something like that. Like I, I can, I would have to pivot away from, he's not going to be satisfied with just his own family doing better, but he might be satisfied if I said, I'm going to make up a number, say we have 500 workers. What if I said I could give 10% of those workers like the next bump up and we could create like a job career ladder here so that people can earn more money. There is more room to have more and you can be ambitious and work harder to get ahead. Right now, if it's just boss and a sea of workers, there's really not any career ladder existing. So I think that's what I would try to sell them on. Some idea of a career ladder, some idea of some sort of layers, depending on experience and stuff like that. And acknowledging that like those with who have worked longer, those who have done more, whatever, they should get paid more. I don't know how you address like safety conditions and stuff like that. Those things, I mean, obviously that would have to be like with everybody, but I think that's where I'd start. I'd start with like, not just you, but like, I'm sure you have many good people that have been working with you and coming to you and talking to you. All of those people would be great to move up to like a middle management kind of rung. How about you? I think that's smart. I think that's smart because it actually achieves something that Henderson in the end of the episode warns the men against that that they'll try to divide them. It actually does divide them. When you enter when you introduce the idea of a hierarchy, it actually does create rungs of advancement. So it does create a career ladder where some people are making more money, but the nature of some people making more money and some that means some people are making less money. And so it is smart from management's standpoint to set the men in different strata because it naturally creates a division amongst them because the ones who are getting paid the least want to overthrow the ones who are getting paid more and the ones who are getting paid more want to keep their jobs, which requires them to keep the people below them down. It actually is a very smart tactic from a capitalistic standpoint, but also has the smell, the scent of benevolence of, I don't really, you know, we're not going to just uh, carte blanche across the board, give everyone more money, but those who are the best at their jobs, we should reward them. And you are right to bring that to us. And we will, we will, you know, bring that 10% and, and make their cream rise a little bit more to the top. So what would be your tactic? I would have made the pitch to join me, take the money, better your better your children's education, allow your wife to quit her job of sewing, come work for me in management. And then he says, well, since this is for my benefit, George says, he, like he does in the clip, yes, it is for your benefit, but also it's for the benefit of your men and your men and, and their working conditions. 
I don't work in the factories. You know the job, Mr. Henderson. I need you close to me. I need you to be my liaison between me and Mr. Clay and the men on the line. I need you working with me and talking with me. I can't just stay here. I haven't run the projections. I don't know what the 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 eight-hour working day versus a 16-hour working day or, or more OSHA-esque standards that doesn't exist yet and won't come into being for another 80 years. I, I don't know what that looks like, but you seem to, and I'm interested in talking about it more. So come take my money, come take my job and be my, li my liaison. That gets George off of the hook of having to do anything right now. It gives him the appearance of being willing to consider things going forward, which will always bring down the volume of the mob and the, and the agitation going on amongst the workers. And it puts Henderson, whether Henderson realizes it or not, it puts him on the management side of this, of this, you know, two-sided affair. And so the natural wooing effect of society, I think there's a fair bet here that if George says, hey, listen, I'm going to put my arm around you and you're going to be my voice and you're going to speak for me and we're going to talk and we're going to make the workers' conditions better, but you have to say, you have to show me, Mr. Henderson, how does making the working conditions better and safer and the men's lives better, how does that help me as a businessman? It, it's a classic technique of I'm going to say why it's better for you, but also why it's better for your cause. That that's what George fails to do here. He solely focuses on a man has his price as an individual. He completely ignores what Henderson's actual price is, bettering his workers. So if he had just expanded the carrot and what taking George's money and power means for the workers, I think it goes a lot further and is a lot harder for Henderson to turn down. I agree with that. And I think generally speaking, George getting angry when when he did and just starts oh, getting like I so, see what you're doing. Yeah, you're I mean Saint Michael with your flaming yeah, sword. Oh, okay. I thought that was just like I thought this conversation's over. Like you're lose losing your mind. I ugh, I wish you weren't fighting with Bertha right now because I think you would have taken this a little bit better, but I did not like any of that. I, I just thought I, I really thought he kind of like lost his cool. That wasn't that wasn't good business talk at all. And I and I get it. I get about being pissed. And I also get how do you deal with the guy who just wants to be the hero? How do you deal with this guy who who you can't seem to make any inroads with because really all he wants is the glory of being the one who did this. I get it, but I just, man, as soon as you get so angry like that as to be like yelling, that, mm, meeting's over. Go home. Everybody go home. Try again another day. Which which makes us have to talk about that final scene where Henderson has his men gathered around what looks like his living room and, and like the entire workforce seems to be gathered in there. And he's warning them that... that uh, Russell is smart and Russell will try to divide them and he will try to put them at odds. The, the immigrants versus the, the non-immigrants though. I think everyone here is pretty much immigrants at some point, right, but right. it's, you know, it, it's very classist, right? They're going to, they're going to fight. They're going to try and divide us by ethnicity and by, by money. And they're going to put us against each other and we have to withstand that. And they're going to use scare tactics and they're going to try and threaten us. And they're going to try and threaten to fire us. We have to stole, we have to hold fast. We have to be willing to fight. We have to be ready to fight. We have to be ready to die. That's where we're at. That's where this escalation 
speculation goes to in this conversation. Henderson's takeaway from Georgia's failure to seal the deal in New York is we have to be ready to die for this cause. And everyone is super on board with it, except for Mrs. Henderson, who is trying to hand her husband tea and comes in at just the wrong time. She's like, I just don't want to have to fucking sew anymore, Henderson. And you're talking about dying? What the actual fuck? I will go work for Mr. Russell. Yeah, it's. I mean, like I said, I, I feel like I appreciate the drama for drama's sake. Like, it's exciting to see these people be so passionate. And obviously, this is a real cause and a real issue. And when we're talking about child labor and safety and, and working hours and all, I mean, all this stuff is really, really important stuff. But it is still like big talk. And bo- they're both doing big, dramatic, melodramatic talk. Of like, oh, you're, you're over here trying to be the hero. Oh, we have to all die. Like, Okay, probably it's not all like that, but it was at the beginning, right? I mean, I have been, I have served on boards where we have union negotiations and it's never fun. It's it's never without tension. It's never without biting nails and having deadlines come and pass and all, all these things happen. But I guess we have to put ourselves in that at the beginning of all of this, when this all was just starting, it really did feel like life or death for these people because of the unsafe working conditions, because they were working 16 hours a day, because, you know, they they weren't getting enough money to be able to feed their family. That is life and death. And that is not what we're talking about. Now. One of the issues that was brought up for me was health care for their pets, that they wanted health care insurance for their pets. So that was like not the same level of argument that we're having here today. I mean, having just gone through it recently, uh, healthcare for your pets is a very expensive endeavor. I mean, you know that. You know Would you that ever anymore. expect your employer to provide healthcare for your pets? Health insurance? I don't even have dental for my human teeth, <laughs> let alone insurance for my pets, Caroline. Well, there you go. There you go. But you get what I'm saying. Like, it's just one of those things where you're like, okay, we can't compare it to today's union negotiations. We can't compare it to what we expect in a workplace now. We have to remember like people were literally dying on the job. People were, you know, we all know there's like people in the Hoover Dam that were just like cemented over when they fell in. Like it's just fact. So things like that, we have to put ourselves back into those, into that life or death mentality back then. I mean, George brings up the Brooklyn Bridge, which is, you know, opens in May of 1883 and how 20 people had died. And I think the ultimate tally was actually a little bit higher of people who died in the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, it's a little bit of a straw man argument. He's like, should we not bridge New York because some people will die? We can't live in a padded cell. Uh, you know, that's not what he's exactly talking about. I, I think he's talking about more working your workforce to they literally die in their place just because you know that there are other men that will literally just come stand in their actual boots. Like they will push mm-hmm. the corpse out of the boot, step into them and continue doing their job. Uh, there, there's a middle ground there, George, and you're being obtuse to it. But you say that you say there's a middle ground and you're being obtuse. But here's the deal. A middle ground didn't exist then. Right. We didn't have middle management. We didn't have all this. Thing. You have the boss at the top and everybody else. And that's it. The joke of it is that these these days, it's kind of really just like smoke and mirrors that there's all these middle management jobs that go all the way up to at the end of the day, it really is still the boss and everybody else. But we pretend like if you get far enough into an executive level that you actually have a lot more whatever, because but it's a little like I mean, we're all, if you really, really pulled the curtain back, you're still just one of the masses, you know? 
The Federation of Labor Unions that would become known as the CIO, the U.S., the United States Steelworkers Union, what the amalgamated association of iron and steelworkers that Henderson is representing eventually will form in the 30s, I believe it, into the United Steelworkers, becomes a founding member of the Federation of Labor Unions that eventually band together. And what we all know today as the AFL-CIO is really just the consolidation of labor unions together, pooling their resources to increase their their power and their reach and their and their working conditions for their membership. This is really when that is all starting to take off. We talked about the Knights of Labor two episodes ago in the premiere. Henderson represents you know a different a different labor union but that is all starting here and it's because of the robber baron that's the term that George refers to himself here. George is just one of the many robber barons that are that are remembered in history from this very very specific time period i love this whole storyline because of how real it is in america and the rise of labor unions especially against the steel tycoons and the railroad tycoons it is a real american clash that didn't just last for a year or two but really existed for 30 40 years it, it was it was an ongoing battle of men owning america and other men building america and how they got along as employer and employee it's a really fascinating aspect of american history that we're just getting a snippet of here i think they're doing a good job of of giving both sides as they saw it and i think they hit us over the head pretty well in this parlor scene of Henderson saying, unions are growing in power. You won't be able to ignore us. We're bigger today than we were yesterday. We'll be bigger still tomorrow, and you can't ignore us forever. And George's response is, I've got capital, and I've got a fuck ton of it, and I will be able to continue to crush you because of that. There doesn't seem to be a way to come together at this point when those are those are the two corners that, ever, that these guys are coming out of. But they will, at some point, eventually in the future, come together because they will have to and the robber barons don't survive into the future and labor unions do so spoilers labor does be capital <laughs> in the end at the same time you know capital still reigns supreme even 100 plus years later 140 years later since since this topic was being first discussed i want to talk about real quickly about robber baron because there are a couple of terms used in this episode you and i were laughing together because there's a couple of phrases used in this episode and i'm not going to go through all of them i will put it up on Facebook. We hear the term in this episode, cloak and dagger. We hear the term cool as a cucumber. Butter butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. And we hear the term robber baron. Now, I know the term robber baron. Anyone who took American history in school at some point heard the term robber baron. The term robber baron actually dates back to the Middle Ages and has always carried a negative connotation. A robber baron typically employed ethically questionable methods to eliminate their competition and develop a monopoly in their industry. Often, they had little empathy or sympathy for their workers. And as applied to our show, the term robber baron actually first appears as early as February 9th, 1859 in the New York Times article. And then it appears again in an August 1870 issue of the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. 
the term robber baron actually was very much in the vernacular. It is not a, it is a term George would very much know people refer to him as at this point and Jay Ghoul and Vanderbilt and Morgan and all those guys. So it, it's kind of interesting that the term was in use and that George would then refer to it as himself. And I think it's funny when Henderson laughs and says, you use the term, not I. And I think he means not me, but you go on. You do Henderson. you, Henderson. Oh, Henderson. <laughs> oh, Henderson and your grammar. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I mean, clearly this is going to be, this is, this is George's opera wars, right? This is the other through line for the season. Oscar's journey to marriage, Bertha's journey to taking on Mrs. Astor via the opera, George's journey to continue to squelch the rise of labor unions and fair working practices so that he can continue to make as much money as possible. We have our journeys, and I like that we're inching it along. You know, there's only eight episodes, though, so this is going to have to come to a head at some point, probably sooner rather than later. Having finished George, we're going to bounce back over now to Bertha and finish off Bertha's development with the Opera Wars. Because the the Turner stuff aside, and I think we've discussed Turner into the ground, there's a couple of interesting things to keep track of as the season develops that are introduced here. One, Bertha has been appointed to the board of the Met. So she is not just a patron and an advocate for the new Met, for the Met, the new Opera House, but she's actually literally on the board now. She's going to have even more influence and even more say about how the Met conducts itself vis-a-vis taking on the Academy of Music. I think that can't be underestimated enough or, or overestimated enough. I think we have to pay attention to the power Bertha has secured as being a, a board member of the Met. She also announces that her tea, October 22nd, is going to be the day that they open their season, which is also the same day that the Academy of Music is going to open its season. So she is declaring head-to-head warfare. And maybe, maybe Fish gets the episode title award, because she says, oh, you're going head-to-head with the Academy of Music. Maybe needs to see more old money families jumping on board at the Met before she would even consider it. I'm curious what you thought about the candor. We're we're used to the candor that Ward has, and Ward is actually feeling a lot of pressure in this episode. Were you surprised that maybe was so blunt to Bertha that I can't join your little group here, your upstart group here, until other families join? No, we talked about it in our last episode about how they have a really respectful, but blunt way of speaking to one another and that that somehow amongst these women they're able to say things that are kind of cruel and vicious but if they say them with a lot of manners and they try to uh, and with a smile usually they just move on to the next biting comment and it's fine so I wasn't really surprised that Mrs. Fish was being like that I think it's just honest like I, I can't I cannot take up with your cause here until more old money come into the scene. But like then talk to me. Uh, you know, I actually appreciate that over maybe a more modern day of being like, mm-hmm, we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. Check back with me or just like ignoring people's texts or whatever. Like, no, this is much more honest. I actually appreciate it. We were complimenting Ward McAllister last episode about how well he was 
laying out his plan to Bertha in his blunt honesty, you know, absolute candor of no matter what happens, I win. If you win, I, I, you know, I get to be the person who consoles Mrs. Astor in how to carry on and defeat. And if Mrs. Astor wins, then I get to be the steadfast ally to her that I always were. And I get recognized that I've never abandoned her. Bertha takes that in stride and doesn't really challenge that last episode. This episode begins, remember, when she's walking down the stairs with George literally at the beginning of this episode, she mentions that she has a surprise that will set Ward back on his heels. It is the fact that the Academy is opening, that the Met is going to open on the same day as the Academy. And Ward says, well, you can't do that. And she says, you're going to have to choose. And Mm -hmm. that is the one thing Ward McAllister does not want to have to do. He will do a lot of things. You know when Meatloaf's saying I will do anything for love, but I won't do that? Yeah. It's I won't choose that's what Ward McAllister, that's how he fills in those lyrics, but I won't choose. I cannot openly go against Mrs. Astor. That's his what he won't do. He's going to do his little weasel ways, but no way. I. What do you think about this October 22nd sitch where, like, they're forcing people to choose? Like, was this okay or not okay? Listen, you, you, you said it perfectly back in episode one. She's not looking to be an equal to Mrs. Astor. She's no longer looking for Mrs. Astor's approval she's looking to put on the put on the tiara put on the crown and leave mrs astor in the dust in her crumbly old academy of music this is how you do that you force the issue at some point and actually marion marion echoes this and which forces ward to say to her why would we have to choose marion says i like it it makes the competition fair people will have to take a stand for someone like marion who is so sick of the duplicitous nature of this town and the you do this but you can't do that and all the rules you understand why to a marion this idea that everyone will just have to have their cards on the table which opera are you going to on October 22nd is refreshing to her. Bertha is thinking the same thing, but except for a little bit more of it's time to show your cards. Do you stand with me in progress or do you stand with Mrs. Astor and Agnes Van Ryn and stand in the past, one foot in the grave? And I think that's what she's doing here. And for her purposes, I think it's genius. I think it will completely upset the apple cart of New York society, but I think it is genius for Bertha's aims. Unless it backfires and then it will suck. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate what she's doing. You have to you have to applaud her ability to be so willing to go toe to toe. Like yeah. I mean, this is this is courageous. This is something that like Man, it, you're right, because you could fall flat on your face. Come October 22nd is going to be live or die, you know, and let's see what happens. There's a mention of uh, Henry Abbey when Ward waddles his way across the street, which was so funny. And Nathan Lane is just a goddamn legend. Watching him make sure no one's looking out their windows, either in the Russell house or in the Van Ryan house, and then almost getting run over by the carriage and going, whoa, whoa, as he like waddles himself across the street. And then, of course, first thing out of Mrs. Astor's mouth is, you know, did you have to travel very far? And he's like, oh, no, no, I say, I say. He gets all foghorn leghorn about it. 
He was funny. He was a good comic relief in, in a kind of a tough episode a for some of our episode. main people. <laughs> a real tough episode. That's what I'm saying. If you, if you have to smile, Nathan Lane is going to make you smile. He mentions Henry Abbey. Just, just uh, again, I told us inside. I'm not going to get bogged down in history. I'll put it up on Facebook. Henry Abbey was, in fact, the guy who was managing the Met in its first season. His firm actually manages the Met for the first couple of seasons, then leaves, and then he actually ends up coming back and manages it until he basically dies. I think he ended up managing it for like 30 years, something like that. He had this guy, Henry Abbey, that Ward says Bertha has convinced Henry Abbey to open the Met season on the 22nd. That is the guy who would have made that decision at that time. Uh, so it's interesting that we're getting to see Bertha exerting her power and influence over the guy who actually makes the decision at the Met. If you look into who he was, it's just another nice little nod to Bertha's gathering power that she has. Maybe it's power in a very small pond, but it's power nonetheless. Definitely. And she is not going to give it up. So I I mean, God, I feel I really feel like she's just like she's just turning the heat up higher and higher on everyone. I, I mean, it's it, she is not she's not taking a tie. It is win or lose. Right. And, you know, Marion back said she says it's fair for everyone to make a choice. You know, what Ward, the way Ward looks at her and says, why is that necessary? It made that's, me laugh. A, that's that's exactly what I would say. I'm, I, I am not a person who, who likes this this shit at all like if like if someone i know is like planning like a, a birthday party and they already know a birthday party's playing on that night and then they pull some crap where they're like i'm gonna make it the same night and you have to choose i'm like i instantly don't want to choose you because you're you're making people have to miss fun and that's crappy so like bah, i hate that stuff so in your cosmopole you're gonna be sweet ada brooke in this situation i think there should be room for two opera houses in the city why do yes. we have to choose one or the other yes i would be like that because i just can't stand it i can't stand like excluding people it's just not for me if Bertha forcing the issue of opening on the same day as the Academy is savage, what's your take on Mrs. Astor making Agnes decree that the word out on the street is, you know, you know, that meme is like, you know, put the word out, we're back up. Mrs. Mm -hmm. Astor is putting the word out on the street that if you accept a box at the Met, your box at the Academy will be forfeit. That seems equally savage to the old money set. It is. It is savage. I, I think, though, that Bertha pushed her hand. I mean, what can she say? What can she say? Because if people go over to the Met on opening night and then expect to come, you know, next week over to the Academy, I mean, she's making it very clear. You are not going to get to you. You can't choose one one night and go to the other on the next night. Like this is like truly like a marriage. Like you've got to choose and commit. And that is it. If there's enough money to be spread around and everybody can see all the shows, why would you limit it? But I understand that the only way old money works is if you keep it exclusive, if you keep people out. It just goes against my green. Would you be showing up at the Met on October 22nd or are you sticking with your box in the Academy? The Academy didn't give me a box. I've been on the goddamn wait list. I'm behind you the have? McNeil. So I'm <gasps> going to the Met. I'm going to go hear Miss, Miss Nielsen sing in Marguerite's Garden. God damn it. <laughs> I want one of, the 102, one of the 102 boxes that they have. That's where I'm going to be. It. You know what? It's, it's going to be more fun. There's going to be like more, more excitement over in the Met. I just know it. 
do, uh, I'll let you choose. Do you want to do Peggy or do you want to finish off Larry and the Servants? Do you want to say Peggy for last? Ooh, let's do Larry and the Servants. Let's make Peggy last. All right. We get Susan Blaine straight mounting Larry, putting her boobies right in his face. She is, we talked about this last week. What is her goal with Larry here? She tells us her goal. I want to have fun with you all summer long and pay no price at it. So I need to know where your mother is because I saw the way she was looking at me. You don't get more cards on the table than that. I hope Larry hears that and says that when Labor Day comes and Diddy's having his white party, you're out the door, buddy. Like, summer ends. Like, you're the toy for the summer with no Mm -hmm. price to be paid. Larry's too young, I think, even if a guy, I feel like Larry's too young to appreciate the nuance of emotions that way. Am I wrong? Am I giving Am I giving him too much credit or too little credit? Do I you mean, think he really appreciates the situation that he's going to be out no. the door? No, because I think that anybody who's young doesn't really appreciate the gravity of having the intimacy of a sexual relationship and what that can mean. How, you know... Catching those feelings. Catching those feelings. And I think that Larry is not going to expect that right now. He's probably kind of okay with just like keeping it at fun. But Mrs. Blaine knows the actual score. Like she knows that chances are he is going to fall in love. Chances are he is going to like want more than this. So she's right to try to like set it out at the forefront. Like, hey, this is just for fun. This is just casual. This is what this is going to be. I just don't. I'm. She literally says, I don't know how you stop. My cake and eat it too. She literally says that. (laughs) She's being really clear. She's being super clear. I just, I don't think that Larry is hearing her. You know, he can't really absorb it for what it is. Also, am I the only one? And everything comes back to sex with me. So maybe I am the only one. But I'm the only one who interpreted Trent the butler as someone that she bones to keep in line. She was having this conversation. Ooh. For those that weren't paying attention, Larry actually had the forethought to say, what about your servants watching us fuck all the time everywhere? And she's like, don't worry, Trent the butler keeps them in line. So Larry, being all saucy, says, well, who keeps Trent in line? She says, Trent and I have been together for a long time. I keep Trent in line. Hmm. My eyebrow was raised like Phil Kogan on The Amazing Race when she said that. Have we seen Trent? I think we've only heard her speak to Trent off screen. Oh, there was a point when they first come over, right? I gotta go look into it. But even if he is an old dude, we know she's not against mounting the old dues for her aims. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if I'm Larry, there's all sorts of red flags here. If you're catching some feelings that you need to be aware of, and I don't think Larry is catching them. I agree with you 100% on this. I really I really think that Larry is in way over his head. And I don't really, you know what? You know, she can sleep around with whoever she wants. She can sleep with her staff. Obviously, she wasn't sleeping with her husband. So it's not crazy to me if, if Trent and her had a thing going on. And again, guess what? Trent can't come out of his station, right? He's got to stay at the, at the staff level, we think, right? Even Mrs. Blaine's thinking that. But Miss Turner has proven otherwise. So who knows what it really means? But I think that, you know, hey, let her have her fun. I just really, I'm going back to our conversation from last week, which was, will the Larry and Mrs. Blaine situation blow up for the Russells? Is it going to infiltrate their lives elsewhere? Or can they keep it quiet and just fun? And I feel like I'm watching it start to slip away as Mrs. Blaine's talking. I feel like I'm like watching this get like more than 
I think can stay under wraps. I think it is. It, it, it has to blow up. It's just who pays the price for it blowing up, I think, is the question. Uh, I actually have a little footage. I was actually able to catch a little recording of Susan Blaine and Trent when they were having a, a little intimate moment. Would you like to hear it? Please. More wine, definitely. Those two scamps. No, that was Bannister and Agnes. That was not Trent and Mrs. Blaine. But I like the more wine, ma'am. Definitely. So you and I have a whole slash, like, very PG fan fiction going on for Bannister and Agnes. In the kind of do it is yeah. very PG. Very it is very PG. PG. It's, They're it's, just like it's, companions. It's just this. Definitely. It's yeah, ju- it's just but I like love it. It's, it's yeah. and it's him like anticipating her needs and and her being like, "Thank you, Bannister, for always being there." Like I, I don't know, they're awesome together. I Caroline, love them. what would you give? How much money would you give to have a man anticipating your needs the way Bannister uh, anticipates Agnes's needs? I, dude, I would dig a staff for one. Let me just tell you that much. I would dig it for them to be like flinging out my clothes, making my food, everything. That would be amazing. Uh, I think generally speaking, anybody to anticipate my needs would be awesome. <laughs> I feel like as a mom, I'm anticipating everybody else's needs all the time. So it would be amazing if someone was like, hang on, she's probably going to want whatever, 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 and have it ready. Oh, that would be wonderful. We already talked a little bit about the naivete of Aurora Fane in this episode when Oscar's comments kind of, Oscar Wilde's comments kind of go right over her head. But uh, at the end of the party, remember... Larry and Susan Blaine make a, a deal that they're going to sneak out so they can go, you know, hump it up at home. And uh, hearing this, uh, standing around, someone says, oh, Larry and Mrs. Blaine didn't stay for the party. And, and, and Aurora says, oh, no, she wasn't feeling well. So Larry escorted her home. And Maude, like, straight up smiles and giggles. And, like, so does Oscar. And Aurora and Charles both go, oh, no, 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 it's not like that. Aurora, how? D- d- <laughs> Good Lord, man. I don't, I don't, they may be Ken and Barbie, but Charles Fane may not actually have any anatomical parts. Oh, you think? I, I just think that I think that Aurora is she's getting too much information. I feel I feel like she like it's almost like she's having to endure like time travelers like coming and telling her things that are happening and she's just having to like absorb it and be like that's not really what my reality is, is it? I don't really know. And it's like she has to just keep listening to this outside info and be like I don't know where I am and I don't know what's happening. I want to know if she's going to crack. I want to know if some of these things are going to start making her ask questions or think differently. That would be some major progression for her character. Let's switch it up to Watson. That he explains it so elegantly. I actually like Michael Service's voice. I actually find it very pleasant to listen to. So let's listen to Watson tell Mr. McNeil his story. And then we have to we have to get down to the two questions that he has to that we have to wrestle with here, I think, with Watson. Start at the beginning. It's easily told. I came to New York as a banker with some success. I got married and Flora was born. Then things started to go wrong. My wife's father wanted her to get rid of me before she inherited his fortune. He arranged that I should suffer the indignities of a divorce. And you let him? They were stronger than I was. Anyway, I gave my wife a large settlement and retired to lick my wounds. And what happened next? I proved her father's instincts had been correct when I lost everything soon after in the Panic of 57. And you never contacted them again? 
My former wife was not keen to maintain a connection. I can imagine. I kept track of Flora's school, where they lived and so on. I saw the marriage announcement in the Times. Was there no possible return to banking? Business at any rate? I'd been declared bankrupt, so no. I was a failure, and it was official. I had no money, no home. For a time, I was almost on the streets. But the one job I understood was a valet's. I had my own valet. I knew what the work consisted of, so I found a place and learned the rest. That scene ends with Mr. McNeil. He, he, he's polite enough, I guess, but ultimately he says, well, this is where we're at. I'm a banker, my wife's a hostess, and her father is a valet. And he says, he says, this is quite a pretty kettle of fish. Now, I know the phrase kettle of fish. This is another phrase, though, that I wasn't aware of was around at this time. So the phrase pretty kettle of fish actually means awkward state of affairs has arisen. It actually comes from the literal use in the 18th century. It was a custom described by Thomas Newt in his tour of England and Scotland in 1785. Quote, it is a customary, it is customary for the gentlemen who live near the Tweed to entertain their neighbors and friends with a fête champagne, which they call giving a kettle of fish. Now, as an idiom, we're not quite sure how the idiom came to mean an awkward state of affairs, but the idiom does appear to have taken shape by 1811. Now, we're in 1883 here. So 1811, Captain Francis Gross's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue of 1811 explains, quote, when a person has perplexed his affairs in general or any particular business, he is said to have made a fine kettle of fish of it. 1811. We're using, <laughs> we're using pretty kettle of fish and its, and its equivalent in 1811. Who That's knew? Funny. That's a phrase that my grandma used to use. Isn't that funny? That's I funny. Love it. I love it. I, I'm totally reading Lord of the Flies right now with, with one of my kiddos and the vocabulary in the different language, partially because it's like British. And so they're using those terminologies that we don't necessarily use, like togs for clothes and things like that, that are familiar to me because my parents say certain words. But I was it was funny, like having to talk with my kiddo and being like, this is what they mean. This is what they mean when they're like English words in our language, but I have to still like explain what they mean. It's a it's a whole funny, a funny little exercise we're doing right now. But I think there's there was actually like like they like ran this script like through some sort of like let's like up the ante on our on our phrases and our vocabulary and and different things because I feel like they threw a lot of unfamiliar or maybe less familiar phrasing around every and every phrase that I was sure was not possibly in use in 1883 I was proven wrong and by a wide margin every single <laughs> phrase checked out I went and looked at, at them all I was on Grammarist I was on a lot of different websites today tracking down phrases because let's stay with Watson. Comfortable retirement life in San Fran, money, servants, but no contact ever again with Flora or any of her grandchildren, and he will be reliant on Mr. O'Neill to inform him of any news. Should Watson take the deal? He takes this He takes this to church, and they have a discussion about, is this a good deal? Is this worth it? Is this kind? Is Mr. Watson, is Mr. O'Neill being kind here, or, or at least doing what Watson would want the husband of his daughter to do in order to protect, you know, her good name? What do you think? Do you take in the deal? 
I don't know. I don't know. I've thought about this a lot. I really thought about this a lot. On one hand, I, I mean, I really do understand like this is a whole new life, right? He can have everything set up for him. But on the other hand, all the potential of what could have been between him and his daughter and, and potentially kids and whatever, being a grandpa, like he has to let all that stuff go. I, I don't know what I would do. I really don't know. What I, I, I mean, I kind of think I have to take the deal, but I feel like I would really want to talk to my daughter first. How about you? Uh, I think you'd hit the nail on the head. He's assuming, and I think him and Church even explicitly say that he's assuming that Robert would not have made this deal slash threat without Flora being aware of it, or if, or maybe even being Flora's idea—the idea of making him comfortable, but on the other side of the country. I think that is a step too far for him to be making that assumption because I do not believe Flora is aware of of Robert's offer to her father. And I think that is upon which I would have to make the entirety of the decision. If Flora says to me, please, you will do so much harm to me and to our, our your grandchildren, my children, if, for any love that you may bear me, take this deal and go away. I would take the deal in a heartbeat and I would just deal with it. And I would, I would, I would deal with my heartbreak because I would be carrying out the wish that I knew my daughter wanted. Without my child saying, please go away. I don't know that I could. I don't know that I should. I think that's a good point. I was just going to say, I don't know that you should, because I think that everybody needs to hear it from their actual relative's mouth as opposed to their spouse. That, that always feels hinky to me, like that a spouse is talking for your relative who you're actually related to like that. Like I, mm, I'm already like red flags, red flags, because I don't know this guy. I don't know if this is how my daughter feels. I, I don't know if he's coercing her. I don't know what's happening. So I would at least need like a sign sealed delivered. This is with my blessing my daughter, something, a letter from her directly, if not speaking to her face-to-face. -face. He's already disappeared from her life once. Flora was presumably a child, or at least a teenager, when he disappeared in the Panic of 1857, which was a real thing. I'll, I'll put up information up in the Facebook group about it. It was a run on a bank when an insurance company failed. All she knows is that I had a dad, and then he disappeared. And now he is, he didn't die, like she probably maybe assumed he was dead, but no, he's here, he's in front of me, he's been stalking me, and now he's going to disappear on me again without a word? Because if she doesn't know the offer that Robert made, which I'm going on the assumption she does not know the offer that Robert made, and he disappears now all over again, well, in her mind forever, and there will never be a way to change it, Watson abandoned his daughter twice i wouldn't yeah. be able to live with that that mm -mm. would that would break my dad even saying those words breaks my dad heart actually having to live that would destroy me the walking away the first time she was a kid she was a little girl i whatever there's a little bit more of like a I, there's no good way to have like that conversation but she's an adult now and they should be able to have an adult conversation and somehow come to some meeting of the minds like maybe you can write or whatever i i don't think it is necessary for them to have such a cutoff i understand on some level you know of course him not coming out there that kind of thing i think for like the concept like we can't talk for the rest of our lives not even a letter not even anything i think that's i think it's too much 
for myself. I think and, it's too And much. Robert acting, adding this quote-unquote sweetener of, I'll let you know any news that you need to be aware of. Come on. Yeah, but you can't write back. And you can't do, you know, and it's just like, God. And how do you see Robert McNeil writing, Dear father-in-law, I hope things are comfortable in San Francisco. I heard you've got a wharf out there and Ghirardelli chocolate. It must be lovely. Things in New York are lovely. We have 18 children and they all speak of their grandpapa and wish you could be here, but you can never come back. Please don't ever write. No, he's going to get a letter maybe and then never again. And what is he going to do? He's going to be on the other side of the country and that's going to be it. And I think he has too much honor to go back on that deal if he accepts it. That's the thing. Watson is an honorable guy. Watson did try and act, I think, in the best way he could for his family. His wife, who he seems loath to refuse as his ex, or he still speaks as if he loves her. It was it was she and early maybe her father who no longer loved him and clearly has affection and love for his daughter that he's missed so much of her life and has tried to keep abreast of the news of her life, he will honor the deal if he accepts it, which is why I need him to make sure before he accepts it. And I think he can only be sure if he talks to Flora or has a communication from her. I agree. And it has to be that way because otherwise anything he does can be misconstrued. Like it, ha there has to be a conversation between them in some way. Let's stay in the servant's quarter. Adelaide and Jack catch up in midway through the episode. Adelaide tells him about Turner showing up and all those going on. They're standing in the middle of the street. He's got his broom. I guess he was brooming the street because uh, Jack Trotter is a, is a madman. I like you say brooming. That's He's funny. brooming. I like these two. I know. I know we like Tim and Bridget, <laughs> but he. I'm just confused about Bridget. It's not that I necessarily even liked it. Bridget was always on his case and accusing him of this and that and stalking oh, him through his What? That's so strong. Here's the thing. Even even now, every time, and, and I know why she's doing it. I I am I've a, a human, and I have interacted with humans before. Sorry, Henry Mike, as I'm wildly <laughs> gesticulating. And I know she's acting out of a place of jealousy because she brings up. Uh, You're only saying that because Miss Weber says that. Like every every time she has a chance to do that. But Jack <laughs> seems genuinely happy to his core when he is talking to Adelaide and as does she she seems very happy and she also seems very fun when she's not running through the house screaming she's here she's here with no other details I like these two a lot I think they're very adorable together I'm fine with them being together. I just want to know what happened. I get you. I, get I just you. want to know what happened. It was so strange. I mean, we see them go on a date. We see all this, like, all these things going on between them. And then it's just like, oh, BT dubs. He's, like, interested in Adelaide. Yeah, now it's like, oh, okay. It was always very unrequited, though, right? I feel like Jack was always the pursuer. Know. And she went No, along. she did not ask him to go see the movie. No, 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 no. Jack, no, no. I'm saying Jack always pursued her. And she went on the thing. And yes, I think she was nervous and scared. And I think, you know. I, I think it came off to Jack like she wasn't very into him and I think it was more her own awkwardness and inexperience in how to handle those situations I, I, from Jack's point of view and he is also not mature neither is Bridget and so I think from his point of view she's not very into me but there is this doppelganger across the street who seems very interested in talking to me so why wouldn't I go talk to her I feel bad for Bridget I wish Bridget expressed herself assuming she likes Jack and I think all of the body language says she does like Jack I wish she was able to express it in a way that made him realize that she in fact does like him because I think Jack has always received from Bridget 
she's just not that into you. And we're all taught, dude, you have to accept when she's just not that into you. I think you saw some episodes I didn't see because I don't know when in the world that not into you. I mean, she was so freaking jealous about taking the flowers to the grave and all that stuff. I don't know, man. I don't know. But I just, we understand that because I'm fine. We can move on to Adelaide. Like, that's fine. But dang, I just don't want to. It's important, though, because we understand all of those things. And every interaction with Jack she has this season is from a place of jealousy. You and I understand that. Any adult in the modern age understands that. We understand what we're seeing. But does Jack understand that? Does Jack perceive her actions as she does like me and it's jealousy? Or does he perceive it as she treats me like shit? She calls me on everything. She follows me. Like, I think we have to put ourselves in the position of how does Jack perceive Bridget's actions? Because I think that's being lost in the signal because they're two babies. So I think that's what's going on here. And Adelaide, I think, is very open with all of her feelings. I think she equally would be giggling, screaming, and crying all within a successive emotions. I don't think she keeps anything under wraps. Whereas I, think I, I mean, I don't see her, her being, I don't see her being like endgame at all for Jack. So it's sort of like, okay, whatever. Like, this is just like kind of. Oh, not Mrs. Wright, just Mrs. Wright now. That's what you're saying. Uh, just Mrs. Across the Street. I mean, we're talking about proximity here, right? This is just a geographic convenience let's let's add some spice to it maybe adelaide represents what his ambitions are whereas he is stuck in the old money world that he doesn't agree with of the van ryan household he longs for and pines for the success and upward movement what he sees as the future represented by the Russell household across the street. And so that maybe Adelaide is the manifestation of what he would like to do with his life, whereas Bridget maybe represents looking backwards and going backwards of the Van Ryan household. All right, I'll go with that. I, I think that we're going to get annihilated for the various pronunciations of Adelheide. <laughs> But we've said it every different way. I think I said Adelaide. I think you said Adelheide, Adelheed. We've said it so many different ways. You all know who we're talking about. I think okay? Mrs. Bruce, <laughs> when she tries to settle her down in this episode, pronounces the hard H and says Adelheide. So I think, I, right. I think I'm trying to be consistent with that, but I definitely have said Adelheide. No, as your editor, I definitely can tell you, no, we've said it all different ways. But it's cool. I'm just, I'm just acknowledging it for what it is, you guys. We have butchered her name a bunch of times in this conversation. All good. And you know what? If she's just missed right now, or if she does represent like some sort of big change coming, we've already discussed that we think their Van Ryan house is going to be upended somehow in the next couple of episodes. Whether we we have relationships coming out of here, whether Agnes ends up, I don't know, I don't want to say the words, I'm not going to say it, but I, I, I'm worried about all the different things that are going on over there. So if Jack doesn't end up in that household anymore and somehow ends up going off on his own and doing something more. That is what I'm expecting to happen for him. He just seems like he's got more ambition. Here's a situation we're all familiar with. You're at an Oscar Wilde play with your fifth cousin who you are not blood related to just by marriage. Let's be clear. You find yourself feeling for this cousin's daughter who is without a mother and yet a mother daughter tea thing is coming up at the school so of course you naturally volunteer yourself to step into the role of the dead mother because you have empathy for that having lost your mother at a young age perfectly normal and very accessible situation for any of us to be in i know the answer because i know you but what's your take on 
Marion taking this very large next step into Dashiell and Francis's life of going to the mother-daughter tea party next week, which we will see in next week's episode. I don't know if she realizes what a big step she's taking. I don't know if she realizes what it means to the two of them, to Francis and Dashiell. So I am going to say that she actually is a little jejune, if you will, because I think that she isn't picking up on exactly what this was mean. I would be doing the exact same thing she did, though. Like if my my cousin and again, this is a little weird because I mean, they're cousins. So I'm like calling upon like family duty. But also I have to leave that door open that like, remember, guys, they're not related like that. So um, so that they can have a romantic relationship here. But to be honest with you, I, I have three special needs kids. I have felt very much like there's di- been different mainstream events that happen that I just feel like, you know what, this is not aimed at me. This is not really a good clicking situation for me and my kiddo. So I really felt for Francis feeling left out, feeling like, how do I do this? And I and I really appreciated Dashiell when he said, you know, like I fool myself into thinking we're doing so well. And then something like this happens and then it like reminds me that like, you know what, there's still like a lot of heartache here. That in itself, that feeling, oh gosh, I think, I mean, apply it to your own lives, all of our listeners. There's there's times when you are fooling yourself into thinking, man, I'm doing really good. Things are going really good. And then something happens and you're just back in your trauma. You're just back there again. That whole feeling, oh man, resonated with me hardcore. How about you? What did you think about this? Do you think that Marion overstepped? Do you think she even realizes what she's doing? I don't think she realizes because I think people being interested in her is actually a pretty novel concept for her. She's a little bit, she's not very unlike Bridget. I I, I don't know how much experience she has with men pursuing her. I feel like Mr. Rakes was really the first person that probably ever pursued her based on how she responded to that relationship that she went zero to let's get married in, in, in a runaway elopement ceremony. Uh, so I think this is all new ground for her that she's not experienced in or savvy in. And I think she is when we have to, we have to set the go to the mother daughter tea ceremony at the play with what comes before in the episode where they're at lunch with Dashiell and Reverend Forte. And there is so much Francis talk about how Marion should teach all of the classes and all the other teachers suck balls except for you because they're not Marion and Marion this and Marion that and she's the actual best. And Marion, I mean, she takes it in stride and she's, you know, she tries to beg it off like, oh, Francis is just too sweet and, you know, she's... I'm not as good. I'm not all that. I'm not as good as she's saying kind of thing. She's not putting the dots together that Francis is is developing real feelings for her, which I think happens often with kids and their teachers. I, yes. I, everyone, everyone, I feel like, has probably had a crush or two on a teacher, especially when you were in elementary school. Well, and don't or, say crush. I don't it's like, not cr- like that. Not crush, but, but, but like, how a, many like, times... a, like a mother figure or a father figure. Or, right. How many times or... have you accidentally called your teacher mom on accident? Like, just because you get into that situation. I know you were saying that you just had, like, you just had kiddos over at your house and one of them accidentally called you dad. <laughs> yeah, I was feeding him Cheerios and I got a dad out of it. So it, it is was, that's yeah. so funny because you're not his dad. But it's like right. one of those things where like kids literally look at all authority figures as like a parental figure. And if you're being nurturing and nice, then you're being that mom figure. Now, I, this is so tricky because normally in a situation like this where you have a child and, and if this was set out from the start as a romantic relationship, then everyone would really be treating the like, when do you meet the kid and how does this, how does the kid fold in and all 
all that stuff later, right? Like it's not like before you even have decided you're romantic with each other, do you start with this? So this is happening a little bit backwards where it's like the kiddo already knew her and she really seems to want to make this happen. So it, now you've got her her heart into this. And, and also that's you're like, maybe family already, which is also confusing. I mean, we can, we can have fun with cousins from in fifth removed, but uh, a, a kid doesn't understand it, though. That remember, it's a little I think, confusing for them. Yeah, Francis is not 14 either. Remember in the very when she's first introduced or they talk about her in the pew at Easter Sunday uh, church? Oscar yeah, says said, she should be about 14 years old. This is not a 14 year old. This is a right. much younger student. Well, so. I would say she seems like 11 or 12. That's what I would have put so her at. I would, 11. I, would have said, I would have said like 10 or 11. So I'm bad at ages, but not 14, though. I don't think so. I don't think she's only a few years away from dating guys. From Gladys? I mean, we're saying basically right. her and Gladys are essentially the same age. Or within a couple of years. And it doesn't feel like the, that. She feels very young. Now, does this whole situation with Francis going on about Marion and Dashiell telling the gathered family at the table about these stories? Remember, it's not Francis actually carrying on at the table. It's Dashiell relaying these stories about what his daughter has said about Marion as a way, I imagine, to compliment Marion. And then Marion willingly and volunteering when she sees sad sack Dashiell, who is not enjoying the play at all because he's so sad about Francis, that she volunteers to take Francis to the mother-daughter tea thing going on at school next week. Does any of that take on a different posture when we learn at the beginning of the episode that Dashiell has written to Agnes, asking Agnes to promote his cause with Marion, for whom he has taken an interest in? I feel like this colors all of this. I feel like this all feels like manipulation and machinations. Mm -hmm. So you think that he brought up everything with Francis at the actual play, knowing Marion was going to offer. Or at least putting it out there. I think that's his way okay. of appealing to her motherly side. Which or maybe has... or just testing a little, right? Testing the water. Like, is she somebody who would step up for Francis? Or is she somebody who would be like, well, that's too bad. Anyway, what do you think about this play? You know, like, how much does she care about the situation? But it's so, it's so skewed because, again, like, why wouldn't Marion care about her cousin and family? And, like, why? And, and she works at the she, school. Right. She, it, it's not a large class it's not like she's got 40 kids it's like 12 or like it's kind of a, it's, it's a bad test it's a bad test to know what's going on but i feel like him writing to agnes to say promote my cause with marion wild it was super wild and they really just kind of like said it in past like moving on like they didn't really stop let they didn't really stop and, and let us focus on that at all before they moved on from it but that's pretty freaking huge and it, I think it, if you keep that in the front of your mind, I think it really colors and skews all of Dashiell's interactions with Marion. And I'm not saying in a bad way. I totally get why he would be into it. She's very good with his daughter, which has to be his primary concern as she goes through teenage years and womanhood and all of the things that she's going to have to deal with. Plus, she's attractive. Plus, she's young and maybe can bear him more children. He's probably expected to marry again. And certainly, if he can provide a mother or a new mother, 
uh, for his daughter. Why wouldn't he? It makes sense. And so I'm not saying that it colors it in a bad way or skews it in a bad way. It definitely puts a thumb on the scale of how we have to view Dashiell's interactions with Mary. And he's pursuing her. That's the point. Dashiell right. is... Pers- it's not is, neutral. If he has written to the Guardian to say, please promote my cause with your niece... Dashiell is officially pursuing Marion, so everything has to be viewed from that lens. It is not just platonic. It, it is really important for our audience. Like if you were folding laundry, if you were walking between the rooms or whatever, and you missed the part about Dashiell's letter to Agnes, really, really important to keep that in mind as we're moving forward. Which perfectly brings us back around to the luncheon with Ada and Agnes and Dashiell and Marion and Reverend Forte. And we've already covered the Dashiell section, but now we need to jump to the Ada section of the episode. Ada, Ada, Ada. I have a couple of clips here. Let's just talk about Ada like uh, like high level. Is she moving to too far, too fast? Are we still feeling good about the Reverend now that we know a little bit more about him? Or is this like a maybe feel like a too good to be true kind of situation? I don't know if Ada is moving too fast. I feel like, you know, at her age and stage of life, I don't I don't know that that you really need to like go really slow. If she finds any amount of of love, even if it's not like the deepest of love, but if it's just a little bit, just some companionship, just some I don't know, just some really good friendship even, I'm okay with that cuz she deserves it. She she really really could use something like this. I agree. Every time Agnes is mean to her or tries to put her down, it really it really knee jerks me into pushing for her to get into some kind of relationship just getting away from Agnes because Agnes is just so mean I she she teases her a little bit uh in the beginning of the episode she she references uh you know your reverend which prompts Ada to say something along the lines of he's not my reverend which I thought was funny because it was a sweet little callback to last week when Marion said I like your rector and she said he's not my rector right so it's just like a nice little <laughs> through line whatever every, every week we'll get a he's not my fill in the blank right but then at, at lunch after she makes such a scene about new england clam chowder serving uh, being served for lunch agnes openly tries to embarrass ada calling her out to to name her favorite watercolorist why why she <laughs> she has so little impulse control about being nasty you know i think it's one of those things you know older people have like zero filter they just like say whatever but also i think she was trying to expose Ada for like being a fraud, basically. Like you're just acting like you like things he likes. This isn't even real, you know? And so then when Ada can actually come back and go toe to toe and say, actually, I I 100% know you're trying to, you know, make me look foolish here, but I do have a favorite watercolorist and here's why and, and can go into the whole thing. I mean, that to me says like, I know you think that I'm shallow and I've got nothing going on in my life, but I think you don't know me as well as you think. It must be a revelation for Agnes to to learn that Ada actually has interests outside of sitting in the drawing room with her and Pumpkin and her needlework. When would she have time to have learned about Adolf Menzel, who was a real watercolorist? You can actually find a lot of his work online uh, through digitalizations of various libraries and museums that have his collections. Agnes must be a little bit blown away, maybe even a little bit worried at all of this reverend attention that is being diverted away from attention that she would normally be getting from her time with Ada. I'm really on this Agnes's jealous shtick as Agnes begins to realize Ada may not be around for her like she has come to depend and rely on her. 
So I'm looking for it everywhere. I don't know. What's your prediction? Is Agnes only going to get worse and worse with this, you think, trying to needle her? Yeah, I think Agnes is going to get worse and worse with this because I think that she's going to be so threatened and so intimidated by this potential relationship here. And Ada and the and the rector, I mean, they are moving quickly. It it is going very quickly in showtime. So it's not like he's there every day. It's not like they've interacted every day. But for us, with as few luncheons as they've actually hosted, with as few guests as they've actually had, it does seem like we're seeing lots of him. I love the sweet little detail that not only did she commit, I guess, the faux pas of the season. Oscar and Agnes were ready to revolt about the New England clam chowder at lunch. And honestly, New England clam chowder should be eaten at every meal. Let's 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 real talk here. Come on. No, this is a callback to season one. Do you remember when we had the conversation about whether soup was acceptable to be served? Yes. Um, that was like a whole thing. So so this is clearly soup is having a hard time during this <laughs> this period. It doesn't know where it can be. I did like Ada's use of the old tiny word receipts. I know you picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that that was like interchangeable with recipes. So we're learning so many things. I did. I actually found I went looking for it because I had never seen that ever. ever. I had never seen that use of that word. But it's true. It really was actually an acceptable use through the beginning of the 20th century for a recipe. Emily Post in the 20s wrote about this in her one of her etiquette articles. In 1922, Emily Post wrote a section on social social usage. Instead of the two words, recipe and receipt, receipt has a more distinguished ancestry. But since recipe is used by all modern writers on cooking, only the immutables insist on still using receipt. And so I've seen that idea that receipt is the more fancy way of saying recipe, but it it just became so commercialized to use recipe. So that's what stuck to us newbies here in the 21st century. (laughs) Who aren't even using a recipe to begin with. But does does my freezer and and microwave count as something requiring a recipe? I don't know. I think at this point we just call them directions or instructions, right? Heating instructions. (laughs) That equals a recipe. I do use a recipe when I make my apple pie, but that is literally the only recipe that I use. That's so. very fancy of you. I'm very fancy. I'm going, I'm, now I'm going to say that I use Pillsbury's receipt uh, for my you apple pie. Best. I, Otherwise, I, I, you'd yes. be just embarrassing yourself. I want to play a little clip because it was a nice callback to last week's discussion that you and I had about marriage among the clergy and Agnes making the point that it must be a nice way for that marriage allows for the minister to have someone help carry the burden of their ministry. Miss Brooke! Is everything all right? Oh, Mr. Dawson had a low opinion of how we give out communion. What part of it was he criticizing? The part where I offer communion to those he deems undeserving. What you must have to put up with. Let's just say some of God's children can be very tiresome. Are you allowed to say that? Can't I? To you? Of course you can. We're friends. Good. Can't I? To you? That sounds a lot like carrying the burden of ministry to me, my friends. I think that he is positioning her in that, you know, 
co-counselor position where he is already confiding in her and everything. I, it is moving fast. It is moving really fast, you guys. I mean, I don't see this not leading to some sort of marriage proposal. I don't see this not leading into something more. I'm just very nervous. Like, I really, I don't want a rake situation. I don't want anything to mess this up if it's going to go this fast and this intense because we're given no time to pay attention to red flags. Just the speed alone is my red flag. I, the speed alone is a huge red flag. I did like Ada going to Marion uh, and bringing her in as a co-conspirator. I felt like it was a nice turning oh uh, turning goodness. of the tables from last season when that Ada was... so was... cute when she was like trying to come up with like an alibi and she's like, and you could say this. And, you, and then, I mean, oh my goodness. Like, like she's not even good at it. <laughs> it's cute, but she's also a woman of an advanced age having to do this. It's, it's cute, but it's also kind of sad. Yeah, it is. And you could tell actually with Marion, like she was like huh like all right well if we're gonna have to do this like this level of this then you know why don't i just go with you kind of thing it's all very telling about agnes right i mean as much as we're talking about ada and we're talking about marion right now we're really talking about agnes and the type of household she's running and what she will and will not allow she is making herself more and more obsolete people are trying to work around her so much now between oscar marion ada even really the staff everyone has had moments when they're working around agnes that's a bad position to be in uh, yeah because agnes will inevitably find out and her wrath is unpredictable plus you don't want to be in a position of running around agnes you know it's I don't know. This is uh, the way they tiptoe around Agnes. You see parallels to the way they've described Arnold. Yeah, you, you know, with Ada. Oh, that's sad, but yeah, I see what you're. I see I what mean, you're doing. Look at that. Look at the hurdles that Ag that Ada has to go to just to go to a museum with uh, with a perfectly fine man. I, from how they described Arnold, I imagine Agnes uh, with Oscar, a little Oscar in tow, must have had to do a lot of circum, you know, circumventing the Arnold globe to get around him. This is a funny thing. Oscar's I feel a the child. That's very strange. Yeah. No, Oscar's Arnold's child. That's what's strange to me oh, in yeah. my mind because I don't ever think of him as like Arnold Jr. Right. But like we don't know anything about like what his dad did to him or what his dad what or kind his, of influence he had on or him his memories or of his father or any of those things and it's fun. i i'm the exact same way about the royals i'm the exact same way i always think of charles and all his siblings as queen elizabeth's kids i never think of them as philip's kids and they're all biologically his children just as equally but i always think of him as like almost like a stepdad or something like they always have to run to mom for everything she's the queen so it's funny cuz it's kind of the same thing like i forget that like oscar would have had arnold in his life and what must have that done to him it's it's really strange who who actively thinks of william and harry as charles's kids and not diana's alone i mm. only think of them as diana's kids i it's not you know. funny it's so weird Really, Philip is like my like way like. <laughs> oh yeah, and Philip. <laughs> I, I mean, Philip was such such an invisible force. It's, but at the same time, he was kind of, a force. He was a force, was. but it was like behind the scenes more. But it was just you know I don't. It's weird to think that like especially because you're a father. I mean, the concept of just not even thinking the kids 
have anything to do with you is like, that's just so weird. But in a story like this, the Arnolds of the world are so villainized, but yet we do have to think of like, well, what influence would that have had on Oscar? The way the world uh, more more times than I'd care to admit tries to omit the father from the the son's life is its yeah. own podcast that we absolutely yeah. cannot get into here. <laughs> no, but at the same time, you know what? I, I do think that especially with kids, there is like a constant, you know, stereotypical story story of like, oh, if you need something to know about the kids, you got to call the mom like the dad's not going to know anything kind of thing. There's tons of those types of jokes all the time that are just so accepted. And it's silly because why? Why? Honestly, in this day and age, I feel like we have a lot more active dads and stuff. I know you are very active. So I, you, you and I were laughing about it because because I'm a very involved helicoptery kind of father. I know all the schedules and all this. So we are watching uh, Nate uh, Bergatsky. Bergatsky. It's a uh, rough last name. He was doing a routine. He was doing a whole bit about how the school called him instead of his wife. And and his whole, his entire bit was, you know, they've got a mother. You have her phone number. Why are you calling me? You should not be calling me. You're calling the dad. You realize that. He's just dumbfuddled at the fact that the school would call him instead of her. I mean, he even says, he he even says like, like, I would would trust another adult woman to figure out what bus she goes on (laughs) than me. Like just anyone, someone who doesn't even know her but yeah that's like sort of the the stereotypical nonsense that goes on even though to be honest with you i mean i i see a lot more involved dads these days you know maybe post-covid more working at home whatever i i see a lot more dads around so i don't know this whole concept is very interesting not not what we're talking about with ada and and whatnot here but i just i had to like pick that little part that like i wonder what other things arnold affected in that house beyond just being married to agnes it's interesting to think about what parts of Oscar are Arnold's because I think uh, it's all the parts we probably don't like the any or, of the slimy anything. But but but, uh, but maybe there's also parts of Oscar that we actually haven't even seen yet that are maybe even worse because I think a lot of Oscar's actions I feel like you can trace to Agnes, which maybe says something about Agnes and Arnold that they weren't such a foreign pair that maybe they were more alike than not. As sad as that may be. But it's it's interesting to think of Oscar as having two much younger parents raising him and, and the influence from which he took uh, from each of them. Uh, let's get to the watercolor show. So they so with Marion's help, Ada gets out of the house. She meets the reverend at the Ross Gallery for the Adolf Menzel exhibit. And really, it's just a row of, of his paintings and it is kind of circle. It's, it's not, you know, overwhelmingly large, but... It's interesting. He's clearly very knowledgeable, Reverend Forte, and Ada. He, she, she's clearly agog at his brain. I think she even says, "I love, how, I love your brain," or she says Aww. something like that. It's so sweet. It's interesting that the Reverend makes the point that Menzel never married, and then says, "But we mustn't hold that against them, especially us two, because neither of them been married." So a lot of groundwork being set here. But then there's the final conversation. He wanted to know if Agnes was okay with Ada coming out to meet him, and she dodges the question. Which I don't know if he picks up on the fact that that probably means that that Agnes does not know that they are meeting. But mm-hmm. he says. I hope she has a good opinion of me. Ada says something along the lines of, I'm sure she does, and I'm very grateful. And he says, I'm grateful to Miss Brooke, dot, 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 for several reasons. He's being very vulnerable, but it's also, like, very, like, I'm going to ask, 
your sister's permission for your hand in marriage feeling. This was a much younger man and much younger woman, and a father was in the scene. This would be a conversation of, like, I'm going to ask your dad if I can marry you. Like, it feels like right. that kind of talk. Right. I, You know, I really feel like Ada is kind of ready for that. I mean, as much as it will be a shock for any one of us to feel like, oh my God, like, is Ida actually going to make any kind of move? Because I, I, it's hard to imagine, you know, her and Agnes are so just like bookends, you know, it's hard to imagine one without the other. So it's, oh, it's going to be just difficult no matter what happens because if Agnes makes it so difficult that they can't continue this relationship that will be terrible if something with Ada and the rector makes Agnes feel like she's been thrown away and she's you know just all by herself that's terrible too so I would love to think there's a scenario in which they can move forward with their relationship and Agnes can be okay but I just don't see that happening we got to get to the Peggy storylines. The final thing, we haven't talked about it. The setup for this is Booker T. Washington, who in 1881 set up the Tuskegee Normal School in Alabama. He got funding from the state of Alabama. A normal school, which I had heard the word, but I never actually looked up what it meant. And a normal school was a school specifically for the training of teachers. In 1883, he's constantly looking for funding to add on buildings and add on supplies and add on teachers and add on space. It was, it was originally a very small spot. And then he eventually bought, I think, like a hundred acre farm, maybe, or a hundred acre plot of land. And he eventually built the school. So this building that they're talking about is the Porter Hall, funded by Alfred Haynes Porter or Alfred H. Porter, uh, if you were to look him up, which is who the white man from Brooklyn that uh, Thomas is talking about in this episode. He did donate the money for it. Porter Hall was built by students in 1883. Porter Hall was the first building erected on Tuskegee's campus. The building housed not only dormitories, but also administrative offices, library reading and recitation rooms, a chapel, kitchen, a dining room, and also a laundry. At the time of the completion, Porter Hall was the largest building in the town of Tuskegee. In 1903, the, tru- the structure was actually demolished, and two years later, Huntington Academic Building was erected in its location. So just another real famous, important people of this time intersecting into our story. Obviously, we only hear about Mr. Washington in this episode. We don't meet him. We're going to meet him next week. But I think it's a really interesting person and place and time for Peggy and T. Thomas Fortune to be going down and meeting. My first question, I'm going to play some clips, but I want everyone to think about this storyline from this point of view. Is Peggy letting her enthusiasm, ambition for the work and for find, and also for finding a distraction to her grief, blinding her to the dangers that her mother is going to warn her about, as well as Thomas, as well as the dangers of a, of a man and woman who are not married traveling together, which is something that everyone brings up to her, including Marion. So let's think about those questions. I want to play two clips. This is the first one is going to be Thomas and Peggy talking. And then the second one is going to be Dorothy and Peggy speaking. Booker T. Washington is opening a dormitory at the Tuskegee State Normal School. And he's invited me to cover the event. You know everyone. Well, I met Mr. Washington when he was here last year raising money. Tell me about it. Well, he's intelligent, driven, and quite adept at getting large donations. Alfred Haynes Porter funded this dormitory, so our angle will be how white Brooklyn money is building a colored institution at Tuskegee. No one would ever know that. Which is why we're doing the story. <laughs> well, good for Mr. Washington. Oh, I suppose now they can take students from anywhere with the new dormitory. Well, that's the idea, but I don't know why a colored student from New York would go all the way to Alabama just to learn how to be a farm laborer. 
Well, I read that Mr. Washington also trains the students in teaching. I know they promised to be teachers for two years when they finish, but after that's done, it seems they only get offered the kind of jobs white people want to give them. Perhaps Mr. Washington sees what he's doing as the first step. Well, that's what I need to ask him. <sighs> I envy you. I'd love to write a story like that. Where will you stay? With Mr. Washington and his wife. Huh. He wants publicity for the school, so he's excited for me to come there. When were you last in the South? Not for many years. And when I lived there, I was a slave. Oh. I see. No, you don't. Because you can't. But somehow I have to put that behind me. When Booker T. Washington calls, I must go. Well, I hope you'll consider his point of view. So you like the idea of our highest ambition being to milk a cow? I'll tell you what I do like. When colored people open doors, when they help others to earn a living, I like independence and self-reliance. And even if it's not perfect, this Tuskegee school seems like a step in the right direction. Let's break that down a little bit because that's actually a lot to cover before we get to Dorothy's conversation with Peggy. I think this boils down to an interesting discussion of highest ambition not being something that Thomas, uh, a now freed man working as a newspaper man in New York, agreeing with the possible jobs open to most men of color at this time in the South. And so his idea of highest ambition to milk a cow versus what I think Peggy is trying to say, change has to be incremental and that this is a step in a, a step in the right direction. Thomas wants more radical change, a bigger impact to allow more men of color to become, say, newspapermen like he is himself educated and, and successful versus being a farm laborer or versus Peggy, who's saying color people of color teaching other people of color and giving them a start and lifting them up and 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 working together is a step in the right direction and all together we rise both have merits did one make a better argument for you than another well first i have to say that this conversation really struck me when t thomas said he was a slave i mean i felt like the air went out of the room i was like oh gosh like this is a really good reminder to everybody of where we are in time we're not not far away from the Civil War at all. And, you know, this is still very serious. This is not something we've talked about a whole bunch at all in this series. That alone, I was like, oh, my God, I hadn't even considered that. Now, I live in the South. I'm very aware of everything that they're talking about. I literally drove by Tuskegee last week. <laughs> they are both 100% right. It, it is okay to want change to come faster, and it's okay to praise the change in incremental steps. Those things actually don't feel like they're in huge conflict with each other to me. For Peggy, I could see where the urgency would be foreign to her with what T. Thomas is saying, because she's just wanting like any amount of steps. But if you're T. Thomas and you know how horrible it has been for these, these generations of people— you could see where there would be a lot more urgency to get them up and out of that situation. And it's not the same as people saying like, oh, well, you know, at least they can, you know, do a little bit more. It, it, for him, he's like, that's not good enough. So I get it because they're coming from very different points of view. And I think they're both right. I, I think all change 
ultimately is incremental because even even when it seems like a big change, you're probably just ignorant to the smaller steps that were taken along the way and the people who aren't getting a lot of spotlight or praise, all the things that they did to make this what you see as a giant change. Really, there was always smaller changes that were happening. So I think they're both right. I, I want to take to the... the um, him and Peggy traveling together. This is a big question mark for me because we talked about last week about, you know, okay, how how is the loss of a child perhaps going to put some strain on T. Thomas and his wife? Is Peggy being part of this picture going to start putting a strain on their relationship? So all of that, and especially, of course, the optics of the two of them traveling together is also problematic. Peggy surprises me how much throughout this episode that she doesn't really take on the full gravity of traveling to the South. It it seems like she is listening, but you're right. I think she's very excited about the opportunity and very much uh, like looking at the assignment and not really thinking about what are going to be all the challenges to actually complete this assignment. Did you see things differently than that? I like that you brought up the the topic of learning and hearing Thomas talk about his time as a slavery because he snaps back when she says, oh, I see. And he he Mm -hmm. says, no, you don't, because how could she? Never having had that experience herself she really can't none of us can know that experience and so he really does have a very specific point of view that has to be for hundreds of thousands of of men and women at this time that is uniquely their own that the peggies of the world can't possibly know because they didn't go through it they've heard stories from parents or grandparents but they themselves are coming up in a generation where because of what those older generations went through they don't have to so i I like that he did that and he did it in a curt but not impolite way and then explained himself it's that interesting way that these characters can talk to each other where it can be kind of harsh, kind of biting what they say. But as long as they say it sort of matter of factly and with some etiquette, then the conversation continues. I think that's something that we are lacking so much in our world today. Well, we can't have discourse. And no, none. We cannot have any without people just losing their minds. So look at this. Look at this situation where people are talking about extremely difficult topics. They're talking about what they think should happen next. And nobody explodes. Nobody like yells anything horrible at each other. I think they can just have a conversation. I think that's alone is like very nice to see on TV. TV role modeled for us. So I liked when he shares that story, it helps frame his point of view and going to cover the story because while Peggy is, you meet the most interesting people and she's, she just wants to go meet Booker T. Washington and who doesn't want to go meet Booker T. Washington at this time? He seems less enthusiastic about the story because he, he knows what it means to travel into the South and he has cynicism about, about Booker T. Washington's mission or at least in how it will actually play out. When he says, I know they say they're going to work for a year or two as a teacher after their training, but ultimately they're only going to be able to get the jobs that white people are going to allow them to get uh, unsaid, quote, you know, dot, 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 if they stay in the South. So I think he actually has a healthy cynicism of what Booker T. Washington is trying to do with the Tuskegee Normal School, which is nice because it is juxtaposed against Peggy's very enthusiastic support for what Booker T. Washington is 
just trying to. She's not assuming the worst will happen after those two years of training commitment and teaching commitment are up. She, she's she is taking the assumption that they will build upon that. He is taking the assumption that it is a show and a sham and they will be forced back down in status once that time period is up. Which is a fair criticism because it, what his concern is, is that I, we're not just trying to teach people how to do what we were doing as slaves. Like, right. that's not what I'm interested in. Like, I'm interested in them having career opportunities that are far beyond anything agricultural. That's cool. That's totally understandable. And we are starting, as you and I have done our Edison studying, I mean, we are starting into a more urban, less rural era that's coming. And so it's he is forward thinking. T. Thomas is right. Yes, people are going to have to have the skills to work in a factory or have skills to work with machinery or whatever. That's not going to be about farm labor. I respect everything he's saying. And again, I understand that urgency because he is feeling like these people can't be their full potential until they get up and out of there. And Peggy doesn't really get that, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think she fully appreciates the bite behind when he says just the words highest ambition and, and that's just mm-hmm. the whole phrase but there is there is there's anger and there is a life of resentment behind that highest ambition comment it's interesting to, as as a person who lives in just upstate new york i uh, moved out of the city you know years ago but i live about an hour and a half north of the city new york state is actually largely dependent or traditionally was largely dependent on farms fruit mm-hmm. farms apple is a major export of new york New York apples are a big thing, but there's a lot of dairy farming. There's a lot of farms in New York. You don't think about that. The upstate colleges in the SUNY system, the State University of New York system, are desperate for people to enter their farming and natural sciences divisions. There are so, there are so many schools devoted towards getting people back into doing farming again because individual farming is such a dying occupation in this country. Most farming in this country is done on a corporate level now. So mm-hmm. New York New York State Universities and upstate New York farms are desperate for people to to keep knowing the skill of having to be having to be a farmer. So when he says, why would a New Yorker go to Alabama to learn how to be mm-hmm. a laborer on a farm, a farm laborer? It's funny, in 2023 in New York they're encouraging people to want to go do that. And I imagine the yeah. bright basket in other parts of this country, it's got to be the same thing. Feels like a little throwback to our conversation about alarm clocks. It's it's interesting to watch something come about and kind of become passe, like all in the same time that like where we are now. So it's like, you know, we, we had a thriving farm system. Here we have people like T. Thomas saying like, come on, let's get, we need to have more ambition than just working on a farm. And then now we're at to a point where we're like, can somebody please be ambitious enough to be a farmer. <laughs> and like, nobody wants to do that. So it's it's very interesting that the large timeline here of these things that are kind of come in and out of our society and, and what we value and when. Just do anything in, in, in 2023, just do anything that's concerning with with renewing the land and protecting the land. and Or canning or our homestead stuff or any of that stuff. Getting your hands dirty in, any, in mm-hmm. any kind of way. It's, you know, it, we've, we've really come full circle in, in so many ways. Uh, you've picked up on, I think, my biggest issue or not my, it's not an issue with the show, but my biggest concern is Peggy such that she is not acknowledging the dangers with this assignment from the actual 
physical going into the South, into Alabama, plus traveling with a married man who she's not married to. I think mm-hmm. it gets hammered home better in her conversation with Dorothy. Let's take a listen. You don't seem to understand that once you cross that line, you are no longer human. You must promise me to always stay with your group. Never go out alone. I can promise that. Do not make eye contact with any white folks. And don't speak to them. Even the slightest gesture or or look can be misconstrued. You're telling me to be subservient? I'm telling you how to stay alive. And if it were up to me, you would not be going at all. Well, I have to go. I need this. I need to show the world that there are young, colored people really making something of their lives. It gives me a purpose. And if I can put my whole self into my work, then I won't have a spare second to think about my poor boy. I know, I know, I am so sorry you are going through this, but listen to me. The South is no place to find refuge, and I wish you would reconsider. Man, she can't pull out that kiddo card every time that she gets pushed back on stuff. Like, that's going to get old. I understand that she is very upset, and of course it's all warranted, but this was a different conversation, and I kind of felt like she threw that in as like a... I don't know, make her mom shut up kind of line. You know, you can just say some of those things sometimes and it just shuts down the conversation. Dorothy has a very important point. And as much as a lot of us feel like that dynamic has changed, I can say that, like, again, having lived in the South, but most specifically, I live in Texas, but Mississippi, Alabama, it is still definitely a, a situation where I was like going into a gas station and a black man was holding the door open for me. But I had taken the door and I was like, no, you go ahead. He would not allow that. He was like, absolutely not. Almost like he didn't even want to mean with any of that happening. And I was like, it's okay. Like, but see, that's me being out of the loop about anything, any, any grief that he would be given or anything like that. So like, for me, I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot here that Peggy is just, I don't want to call her ignorant because it sounds so ugly, but well, youthful exuberance that just puts everything else out of her head. And then, and like kind of a teenager, anytime you push them, they just pull out the biggest trump card they have. Like, remember my dead child? And it's like, oh, right. You can't bring that up every time we're disagreeing with you. Like, for me, I would be like, that's enough of that. <laughs> like, you know? You know when John Mulaney tells a story and at the end of it, he says, that's the story I'm willing to tell you. Yeah. Imagine what it takes for Dorothy and Arthur to allow yes. her to leave Brooklyn to the the largely person of color section of Brooklyn that they live in uh, in like that Brooklyn Heights area crossing the bridge and heading up to East 61st Street where no one else looks like Peggy and they allow that begrudgingly now imagine now imagine the idea that they're gonna have to know she's going down to Alabama you know like we allow you to go to 61st street and we're worried enough about as is imagine how we feel about you heading you know south of the Mason-Dixon line when she opens up that 
clip. I almost stopped it just to to mention it. Go back and watch that scene when she says, you don't seem to understand when you cross the Mason-Dixon line, you are no longer a human. That's a that's a freaking whiplash. And Peggy reacts in kind. I mean, she reacts yeah. accordingly and it, it does chasten her. She eventually, you know, builds up her steam and, and gives her defense where she flukes down and cries and mentions her child and, and also bringing the plight uh, or bringing, bringing the the possibility of opportunity to, uh, you know, using her, like, to color children, I think she says, uh, that there is hope for them to do something. She regains herself, but she is chastened in her mother because Dorothy hits her with, like, those words, like a whiplash, and then she ends it in the same kind of way, quieter, but to say the South is no place to find refuge is a very powerful statement. We, we remarked about George saying to Gladys last week, marriage is no place in which to find freedom. Yeah. This is even more damning. The South yeah. is no place to find refuge. You have to hear those words. Assuming that they do take this trip, assuming nothing gets derailed, I really hope that we just have like a near miss. I really hope that Peggy doesn't really face some serious consequences for not taking this as seriously as we'd like her to. I'm I'm really crossing my fingers because so far this show has not done anything like that. We we talked about this in the previous episode about like we haven't seen the super abusive husband. We haven't seen like on screen. We've heard about it. And like this, we're hearing about Dorothy being chased by men and Arthur saving her. We hear about T. Thomas being asleep, but we're not seeing any of these things. So it's it's a wonder to me if Lord Fellows is going to choose to expose anything when and if they actually take this trip um, and really show something happened to Peggy. Or is it just going to be like a, a really near miss, something that happens, with, but they get out of it? Just to, just to illustrate the point I was making a second ago about she puts herself in harm's way as as being maybe a fish out of water just by going up to 61st street we didn't even get to this but this is this is armstrong's reaction to hearing that peggy is writing letters on agnes's behalf and mrs astor's behalf about if you take a box at the met you'll you'll have your academy box forfeited let's listen to this armstrong clip from from this episode well mrs astor's really looking for a fight i heard her I wouldn't say Mrs. Russell has a chance. I knew Mrs. Van Ryan was right. Things must be heating up if Mrs. S is paying calls to get people on his side. Miss Marion supports the Met. So do I. And where will that get you? That's what I think. That's all. You only think that because Miss Adelheid Weber does. The mistress has got Miss Scott writing to all the Academy members to make sure they hold firm. What? She can't write letters to that sort of people. Why not? When a fight is big enough, everyone gets sucked in. Why can't Peggy write letters to those sorts of people, Miss Armstrong? This is on 61st Street. This is in her employer's basement that she shares supper with this woman. Not willingly, not voluntarily, but she still does. Well, she does. Armstrong doesn't do it voluntarily. Uh, Peggy is there voluntarily and, and openly wanting to eat with her. Right. But this is so just this woman exists here in this world. You have to know it's not going to be any better than that when you go south yeah and and you know what she's a smart woman she has to realize it but realizing it or knowing something and really actually appreciating it i think we all understand those can be very different things there's so many things that we know we should or shouldn't do but actually appreciating why you should or shouldn't do something is very different until experience comes in and kicks you in the face 
I, I'm telling you, I, I know that this sounds like a very small example that I'm giving about the door holding, but the way that he looked in my eyes and kind of gave me that like small shake in the head of like, no, like you don't get it. You cannot hold the door for me. I have to hold the door for you. And I was like, it was something that I had to live. I had to live that to be like, oh, no, you are legitimately concerned about the optics of this. And I need to play my part to not have anybody be upset at you. So I will so that this is not a, a problem. But do you, but that's where Peggy's kind of at. Like she's never had that moment where she had right. to say, she doesn't know hang what on she a doesn't second. Know. And here's the thing, even the small taste she's had of just Armstrong being just rude to her or flippant to her or anything, if she like that was enough for her to want to leave her job and go back and live with her parents. And it's like when you go through all this stuff, it's like, do you realize like you reacted so strongly to just a woman just kind of being rude and reading your stuff and stuff like this is going to be so much bigger and so much worse than you could possibly imagine. Here's the other thing, too. Peggy can't go into Tuskegee or anywhere along that trip with this attitude that she has from last week with Armstrong. What's this? I helped Bridget with the sewing. I couldn't do it all. Is this some sort of trick? It seems as if Miss Scott has done you a good turn, Miss Armstrong. Aren't you going to say thank you? Thank you. You're welcome. Bridget, come and help me. I confess I'm surprised. That I did you a favor? No, not exactly. I'm surprised you were allowed back into this house. I have no quarrel with you, Miss Armstrong. I mean it. But I promise you do not want one with me. And I love that fire. And we all love that fire. And let's take it to Armstrong and then put her on her ass. She deserves it. But that attitude is exactly what Dorothy is telling her in this scene. You cannot go with that with that piss and vinegar attitude. And to the point that Peggy has to say with like scorn in her voice, you want me to be servient? I mean, Dorothy says things like, you have to keep your head down, do not make eye contact, do not step to or talk to or engage any of the white people there. We That clip with Armstrong very, very much says that's not who Peggy is naturally. So it's going to require an adjustment of her behavior and who she is at her core in order to to live according to her mother's rules that she sets out for her here. I think she's going to actually have to witness something. I'm guessing, yeah, I'm guessing the way that this is written as an entire show that, you know, the really bad thing hopefully won't happen to Peggy, but she might witness something bad happening to someone else and, and make like the recognition of like, oh my God, like that could have been me kind of thing. I feel like she does need a moment to like kind of sober up to the situation and be like, wait a minute, I I can be a spitfire. I can be that firecracker, you know, ingenue that wants to write this amazing article, but I have to pay attention. I have to pay attention about what is going on in this world and what people really are willing to act like. Let's just circle it to the other aspect of it, which we touched on a little bit. She is unmarried. Thomas is married. They are Ooh. heading down. They are traveling a long distance to the house of a man who is married and going to be staying, both of them, under 
his roof and Thomas's wife is not, as far as we know from the conversation that they have, going along for the journey. It's potential trouble. I mean, definitely the optics of it, not good and not okay during this time. That even Marion pointed out and, and, and doubles down on it a little bit. She's like, you cannot go on this trip with this man if his wife is not going. Do you remember when we had Marion who went on the trip and, and Mr. Rakes kind of like stole along with them? Do you remember? And then there was like all those antics in the hall and Peggy saw stuff and it was oh, like, kissing. oh. Remember he like, yes. Like, like yes, yes, and like her. really made a move on her. Like really was like, remember, like pushed her against the wall kind of thing. Like there's a lot going on here that like, again, like Peggy, you have had some amount of experience with this where you've seen, you know, a woman traveling with a, with a man like this, that something could go on. And yet she kind of, that part was just sort of like Marion could have brought that up. Like, hey, remember that trip? Remember how things kind of got on, out of hand? She, like, she says it kind of in the same way she deals it with her mother. She says, well, this is a business trip, which is actually what she says to Thomas. And right. and he he agrees. I mean, he is he is the supervisor here and much older than her and also married. And he allows her, he's allowing her to go on this trip. So, you know, there may be, there may be a valid discussion here that he, he is ultimately responsible for anything that may happen. Even, I mean, she, yes, she is an adult woman who can make her own choices, but he does know better. And he is also her employer. The fact that he's going to allow this to happen and allow himself to travel with Peggy into this situation. What's your read on T. Thomas as a man? Like, is there any chance he makes a move on Peggy? Is there, or do we feel like, no, he is going to be completely loyal to his wife? Is this going to be a situation where something traumatic happens to the two of them? And kind of like what we were talking about, we haven't had the Ada and the rector have a situation where they like, bumble into each other and like end up in each other's arms we haven't had that could that happen where if we've heard the story of how dorothy and arthur met arthur was saving dorothy from a situation from white men chasing her down is the it possible that we're having a pattern here where we're gonna have peggy in some sort of situation and t thomas steps forward my gut instinct is no well it depends on what the aims are here are we trying to pair her with someone or are we trying to go with some soap opera-esque drama because then yes if Ms. Warfield and Lord Fellows are trying to tell a story of the Black condition or the Black experience in Alabama in 1883, then I think that does a disservice to make this romantic between them. Maybe the assumption that they're traveling together or it gets out that they're not married, maybe she says to the wrong person, oh, I'm not his wife, we're just traveling together, leads to trouble. Or they've witnessed some kind of violent action or some kind of discrimination. That seems like that educates and tells the narrative of the actual condition and experience at this time, where if you add them a fumbling into their arms, feels like it overshadows and maybe cheapens the larger story that we don't need to go to Alabama for these two to fumble into each other's arms. So if we're going to go down there and we're going to tell Booker T. Washington's story and the Tuskegee normal school, normal school story and the Alabama experience story, let's not have romantic entanglement is my is my viewer is my viewer wish i don't think it's gonna happen i think you're gonna get the romantic part with the backdrop of the south i because that's not the way he's played it so far he's put the the individual relationships up front at the forefront of the storyline with whatever historically is going on as the backdrop 
90% of the storyline's been like that. So it may be Edison's big day, but we're not with Edison. We're with our characters. So there could be something going on in the background. Like I said, like if we're going to meet some of these students, perhaps, if we're going to be, you know, learning more about Booker T. Washington and everything that's going on there, then I could see where conversations, maybe it will be something as simple as interviewing some of the students and they tell these really tragic, traumatic stories to Peggy. And maybe that's enough to get through to her. I'm not sure. Maybe it doesn't have to be some big dramatic, you know, happening. But I I do think the relationships are going to be in the forefront and whatever the societal happenings will be more in the background, I think. As often happens in this life, my wishes are often not anyone else's commands. So, Oh, no, that's sad. Poor you. What are you going to do? Poor me. Everyone Poor play your violin. Mike. Poor Mike. Oh, God. I'm so, so I'm so jejun. <laughs> I don't know any better. I think that's wrapping it up for this one. How'd you like this one overall? Like, what do you what do you give it? What do you feel? This is the third. We're going into the fourth. And the fourth is going to be halfway through the season already, which means that that episode should be pretty amazing and pretty gripping. So I'm expecting a lot out of it. What are you feeling about season two compared to season one overall? I think there is a comfort in this season that I like. I feel like there is a lot of breathing room between especially the lesser core characters. I feel like we're getting a lot of downstairs character development and and just seeing them in moments that don't necessarily move the plot forward, but just seeing them interact, especially in the in the servant sections of the show, uh, which I like. I, I like that. I feel like it makes the world more immersive. I like that it makes the feel the characters feel more three-dimensional. I feel like episodes two and three were very, very table-setting. They were okay. very moving things into place and setting up things. There hasn't been a payoff yet. And I feel like episode four, as the mid-season, as leading into the quote-unquote mid-season of the show, should be a payoff for the things that episodes two and three have been putting into place. I'm, I'm very big into the episode eight and nine of a ten-episode season, you know, set the table for the finale. I feel like episodes two and three feel like they've been setting the table for something which makes sense with episode four being the mid-season episode. Yeah, and I'm ready for some big shakeups. I'm ready for some changes. I think they've done a great job of sort of mix and matching our characters so that we haven't just seen like the same couple of people talk to each other in the same house. Like we've actually been in other settings. We've had like, say, Marion have more conversations with Oscar or now Ada has a love interest. Like there's so much change that it's very exciting. It feels very organic and like a lived in life that we're watching that feels really solid. Like they've really found their foundation in season one and then now we're really building on that. And I appreciate all the work they did in season one because everybody's being given a chance to kind of like play in season two. Yeah, and really build off of that. There is so, there's so much going on in these episodes. I mean, I got my notes down to three very smallly typed pages of notes, but it was really was like six pages. There's a lot of things happening in all these episodes. There are a lot of, epi- a lot of threads for everyone that in its own right could probably carry an episode. They're, they're juggling in 45 to 52 minute episodes a lot of information and I think they're doing it well I don't think anything's really giving short shrift and I think it's moving at a nice 
pace. I think pacing was sometimes an issue in season one. I haven't really felt pacing being an issue yet so far in the season. I actually feel like it's fast. I, I, I feel like lots of stuff's happening pretty quickly, but I know we're halfway through, but it but it still feels fast. Right. I'm sorry. Fast, but not being rushed. Right. Nothing. Right. I, I haven't felt like anything is going faster than it should. Let me say it that way. You know, I, I feel like in season one, we got to like episode eight and there was just kind of we were, we were reaching resolutions on things that felt like they needed to cook more. I feel like everything is cooking at the right amount of time for for some payoff next week. And then and then we start to cycle over again for five, six, seven and then ending with eight. We very much look forward to uh, having you guys come back and listen to some other episodes with us as we continue to finish out this season. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, but particularly at Apple Podcasts, where they let you leave comments, please leave us a five-star review and write some nice things about us, and we will read it on the air. And it helps the show. It helps other people find the show. It helps uh, show HBO that people care about the Gilded Age and want a season three, which I think we all would like. And I don't think anyone really here is ready to say goodbye to this story. I no mean, we way. only have we only have five hours left at this point, so... Oh, that can't be all. I, I you know, I look very much actually thought about it today, where I was like, man, have we been told there's a season three yet? Have no. we been told that season two is the last season? Like, I was like going through my head, like, have we seen anything? And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is nerve-wracking, because we are almost half way so i mean there's so much there's so much gilded age period left to tell no matter how yes. far they get in this season years wise if we do leave 1883 i mean the gilded age is just still getting going we still have another good 15 20 years of of rocking stuff to talk about so <laughs> awesome all right you guys thank you guys so much for listening we'll see you next time thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.